Hello and welcome to the New Ears Podcast, an auditory exploration of the art of the album. I'm usually your host, Jonathan Humphrey, but once again, I'm going to hand that off to the guys from the Beast in the Maze podcast. Next episode, things will go back to a more normal pattern, but for now, check out our discussion on the Iron Maiden album, The X Factor. This was a pretty long conversation, but we had a lot to cover. I hope you'll enjoy. I want it loud as fuck out there, all right? Welcome back to Beast in the Maze, the podcast about Iron Maiden and Fish. I'm Matt. I'm here with my co-host, Brian. How's it going, Brian? Good, good. How's it going? Good, man. And we're also joined today by our mutual friend and podcast colleague, Jonathan Humphrey. What's going on, man? Not much. I'm ready to talk about The X Factor. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about The X Factor with you guys. This album's got a lot going on, a lot of of hate out there for this album, Um, some of which I think is justified and some of which may not be but um we'll get into the specifics as we go on uh anybody want to offer any like first just uh quick impressions i'm, I'm going to go over kind of like the context of the album and bruce leaving and blaze coming in but just before we get to that anybody uh have anything they wanted to start with so this is um steve harris going through a divorce album yeah basically so that that's i think like a lot of the songs uh, make more sense in that context too well we all know divorce is a war well yeah we'll get to we'll get to i have some thoughts on that but we'll get to that later uh because i have some things written down that uh play directly into that there's definitely like a um this album seems a little bit heavier than the iron maiden albums i've been listening to not in like a heavy metal kind of way but in like just a a slower more like grinding kind of like chord based rock and roll than like a lot of like solos and um licks and stuff like that the solos and stuff are still there um it's just not it seems like there's something going on and it's like a little more droney and like yeah it's almost dirgier um yeah or then like i would say it's darker on the whole than most of maiden's catalog Mm -hmm. yeah and even some of the songs like we have it when we get to it, we'll talk about it. But even some of the songs that are written like ostensibly about a novel or a movie or something could still re- relate to that, like I'm going through a divorce motif in some ways. Yeah. And there's some ways in which the X Factor sort of accidentally approaches being a concept album. But I don't think it was conceptualized in that way when they were making it. So I, I wouldn't call it one. But it's definitely got some of the characteristics, I would say. I kind of have a lot to say about this album up front and I don't know where to come in with what. So I'm going to, I just want to start with two things. One is let's, can, can you say what you want to about the album title itself? And then I'll, I have something I want to say. Sure. Yeah. So the, um, the album, the X factor, obviously X 
is um, represents the Roman numeral 10. This is just one of the meetings because it's their 10th studio album. But also when the band was recording the album, they they kind of felt as if it had like a certain special something or a hidden quality to it that they couldn't quite put their finger on. And like, that was the X factor for them. Right. Because when you, when you read them talk about it, it's interesting. They all talk about how like much of it, like a kick in the ass for the rest of the band having Blaze was and how they were all like really excited. But to me, the record just like, in a way like muddy and sludgy and like deals with depression and stuff. And it's not like, what you think of as the result of that kind of enthusiasm. Well, it, but I just feel like it pleads into the second thing I wanted to say, but I feel like the X factor, when you take it in the second context you're talking about, just feels really cocky to be like, yeah, our new singer, we're going to, this is it. Oh, like, that's, that's Iron Maiden to a T though. Right. Like they've always been that way. Like, and I think that like kind of when you've done what Iron Maiden did all throughout the eighties. I think like there's certainly some justification for that type of hubris. Yeah, no, I'm not making a judgment on it one way or another, but it's such a cocky way of thinking about the title of the album for sure. But what I really want to say about this album, and again, I have even more to say about it as a whole is that there is a lot to really like about this album. I think there are a lot of things like this is more experimental than a lot of the Iron Maiden I'm used to. And I appreciate a lot of that. There's also a lot that just doesn't quite work and I can't always place why. Yeah. I agree with that sentiment. Totally. Uh, I do think that, uh, and I may, I may make this point later. I think that in some ways after seventh son, this where the, the band was going in like a more prog sort of metal direction. I think this album actually shows the seeds of some of what like the modern maiden would become um particularly like i think steve harris started playing a lot more bass chords and uh, their sound thickened in some ways but we'll, we'll get into that later so i guess let me just give some brief sort of facts about the record so this is um 1995 which a lot of people say is like a dark time for metal in general so the lineup in X Factor is different from the Maiden albums we've discussed uh, previously, too. So we've got Blaze singing, um, Steve Harris and Dave Murray, uh, Yannick Gers on guitar, and Nico McBrain. So there's no Adrian Smith and no Bruce Dickinson, notably, uh, which is, I think, the latter of which is why uh, a lot of fans never really gave this record a chance, uh, simply because like Bruce Dickinson's shoes are too big for really anybody to fill. And if not too big, they're a very specific size, if that makes sense. Well, definitely. So Adrian Smith had left the band two albums ago and been replaced by Yannick Erz. And then after Fear of the Dark, Bruce kind of felt Maiden had run its course and left to focus on his solo career. And the band was kind of bummed out about it. And I think it was Dave Murray who was like, you know what, screw him. Like, let's just keep going. And they auditioned tons and tons of people, but Steve Harris actually like specifically wanted Blaze Bailey, which I think is like really interesting. Like of, I mean, if you're Iron Maiden, right? I mean, you have like the pick of the litter, so to speak. Well, so I find Blaze Bailey to be like, okay. Mm -hmm. I've listened to some Blaze Bailey Maiden before we did this album with you. And like, I think one of my problems on this album is Blaze Bailey. 
Sure. Like, I enjoy some of what he does, but he has the, he has a tendency to like harp on like a one tone too long. Like he's in this like oh like when he especially when he's doing like the oh but it's it to me it like he's like stuck in this one sound and the sound isn't good to me. Like <laughs> and I don't I don't mean that in like a I'm not saying that the dude's not even a good singer. I'm right. just saying to me, like some of the stuff he's doing here is like, and maybe it's because I've been listening to all this Bruce stuff and he has like, he goes so much. Yeah, he's, well, Blaze high, certainly low, has a, he has a more narrow range. Exactly. And so I, I find that like difficult to deal with when listening to Iron Maiden. Yeah, and I can see that. To, to play off that, I don't even necessarily, I kind of like his vocals a lot of times. I don't even know if it's necessarily his vocals or if that everyone else was just so used to writing for bruce that they he was misused almost at times maybe i think there is an argument that blaze was set up for failure especially um and a lot of people who have written and discussed maiden have said that because if you think about it it's not just the album too like if you're the lead singer of iron maiden like you're gonna have to be singing like number of the beast and the trooper and like a bunch of stuff from their previous catalog on tour and that's that stuff's well out of the range in some cases i mean we don't we don't have to get into that necessarily too much here because it's not really applicable in the studio but it is a, a fact about blaze bailey's tenure in maiden well and that leads me to this question obviously bruce wasn't the first singer so it's not unusual for iron maiden to have a singer change it's happened but why do you feel like they decided this had to be Iron Maiden and didn't just try to do something different? I think, well, first to the point about the singers, I think like Bruce had been the singer for longer than anybody else at this point. So Paul Deano was out of the band in 81, like on the Killers tour. And right. so he shows up for two albums, but before he was the singer, like Paul Deano was like the third singer. You know what I'm saying? So like, right. they, it, I feel equivalent like, to that is like Black Flag and how many singers did Black Flag have? Yeah, I feel like viewed in the rear view from like 1990, early 1990s, you could feel like, okay, that was all like grasping around to figure out the, the winning formula and then that they had found it with Bruce. You know what I mean? And now that's not necessarily the way I view it because I love the Paul Diano stuff, but I don't think it's simply a matter of, oh, we've changed singers before, we can do it again now. Like they've become like legends with Bruce Dickinson. Well, and so I think Iron Maiden's been around at this point for 15 years and like their albums are like platinum and like, I don't, I think they could no more like turn down their brand than could say like the Rolling Stones. Think about how much less money you'd make if you released this material under any other band name. Right. So I guess that's my question is this is a purely a business decision. I think that's a component, but I don't think it's the main component. Like, I think the main component is that Iron Maiden is Steve Harris's life. Fair. And I don't think that he, I don't think that he, like, I think the idea of letting that go would be, like, well, and it's insane it, to him. It's noticeable, too, that, like, Iron Maiden is, like, a member-flexible band. That's, I don't know what to say, but, like, you know, like, they, they've had a lot of changes and, like, kept their name and like their their songs and their lineup they kept doing what they're doing like it's not like they're more you're more on for the ride and like it's how are these pieces gonna fit inside of what iron maiden's doing i think right kind of like hawkwind or something right like 
Hawkwind had what 50 some members. Yeah, Hawkwind's an extreme example, but sure. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, like, there's some bands out there that you just keep rolling and they just have different members and for good or bad, you know? No, I agree. I just I'm curious about when the delineation of that is. They, I mean, on the upside, I'm not going to make references that I've already made in other recordings, but so this is only because I've been reading about it, not because I actually like care or know anything. It just popped up because I follow a lot of music stuff. But apparently there's this band called The Network or something, and they're basically Green Day. They're just Green Day, but they hide their identities and and they make different records than Green Day. Yeah, I heard about this this week, actually. And um, my understanding is they like denied being the same the same band for a while and then eventually just gave up. Right. But my my point is, is that like there there are so many different ways you can go about this it's just interesting to me what would make one decide this is iron maiden is steve harrison whoever he's playing with at the time and usually when that decision's made a lot of times it's the singer that it's like the singer is whoever he's playing with at the time or she or they yeah but steve harris is like he writes the bulk of the songs and stuff right and also uh worth noting i don't know if they existed at this time because i haven't done too much research into british line but steve harris has another band so, I mean, it's not that he doesn't have a side project, but between Fear in the Dark and this album, the only personnel change is the singer. Right. So I don't, I don't actually know. I mean, I don't know if anybody's ever posed that question to him. Like, have you thought about, did you ever at the time think about having the same lineup and not calling it Iron Maiden? But I would imagine the answer is no. Right. So uh, I guess this would be a good time to talk about who is Blaze Bailey, right? Since he's the new um addition to the band the x factor if you will he's that guy that just shouts out who is blaze bailey right (laughs) no that's mike jones oh i always get the two confused yeah so he was in wolfsbane before this and their album they have a couple a few albums but um their album live fast die fast from 89 is the one that brought them enough marginal fame that they were like touring as an opening act for some like household names and that's how iron maiden kind of got to know blaze bailey interestingly adrian smith who left the band before no prayer for the dying his side project band is also a band that opened for them on uh like some during that period of time while he was still with iron maiden no i believe oh after he left i believe after he left yeah uh okay so Blaze is a little younger than the rest of the band. And there's an interesting story about how like his mom told him to like, he needs to get a job and he's like, you know, layabout or whatever. And he got a job as a night porter, which I guess is like at a hotel, you carry all the stuff around. I'm not exactly sure what a night porter does, but he was like by himself a lot. And he would listen to tapes on this Walkman. And two of the tapes that he listened to the most were number of the beast and peace of mind, Iron Maiden's third and fourth album. So getting to be an Iron Maiden is like literally would have been a dream come true for him. Sure. To the extent that when he eventually got offered the gig, like he broke up Wolfsbane to take it. I mean, who is he, Matt Damon? Well, I mean, even if you really liked being in Wolfsbane, the, the money and like, and everything would probably sway you toward Iron Maiden anyway, but that's pretty fucking badass that like, that's what he, yeah. He like, he basically has like a complete eight mile story about being a, being an iron maiden but i've only listened to one or two songs but how familiar is 
Wolfsbane to Iron Maiden because the songs I heard, I mean, obviously they're both kind of in the metal genre, but that can be a big and wide thing. And I didn't feel Wolfsbane's, not to say they weren't influenced by Iron Maiden, but I thought they had a different style. You know, the, so that, that Live Fast, Die Fast album that I referred to earlier has like from track to track, a lot of different sounds going on. So there's some like, there's some spots where he almost sounds like David Lee Roth on the album. And then, so there's like that kind of ballady thing going on, but then there's some harder moments too. Like, I think when you listen to Manhunt, right? That's almost like a punk kind of, I don't know how to describe it. But. It was, it wasn't thrash, but it leaned more into thrash than like Iron Maiden does. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So short answer, the Wolfsbane's a little all over the place genre wise, but they're like a rock to hard rock to metal band. And their guitarist actually does shred in a lot of spots on that album. Uh, another thing, um, if, if people want to want to check out like Blaze with the, with Iron Maiden on tour, there's um, at least one entire show on YouTube. There's like, I think it's in Santiago or something, but there's there's a, sh a spot from the X Factor, which was the name of the tour. Uh, Genius. On YouTube. This is also the first album that Iron Maiden made after Martin Birch's retirement. So he produced their second through ninth albums and then basically retired. So this is produced by Steve Harris, along with like a guy who had been, like who had also worked with them on some previous records. Cool. So let's see. A couple more things before we get to the tracks. Uh, I hate the cover art to this album. <laughs> uh, this is my second least favorite, maybe first least favorite Iron Maiden cover art. Um, although it, I will say like they, a guy actually sculpted the thing out of clay. And I think that that is neat that he did that. It's a guy, Hugh Syme did the art. He's also worked with uh, Styx, Megadeth, Whitesnake, Aerosmith, Dream Theater, and a few other bands, Queensryche, uh, to name a few. But uh, I don't know, man. I think like you could say that it, it, it goes into that symbolizing the divorce breakup thing because he's like, Eddie's being torn apart. Steve maybe feels like he, as well as the band, have been torn apart. But it's just... I don't know. It just rubs me. There's something about it rubs me the wrong way. Like I always thought Eddie was kind of like a, like a prankster kind of like fun sort of guy. And this makes it like real raw in a way. Does that make sense? No, I understand what you're saying, but almost for that exact same reason, I kind of liked the cover, but I especially liked the actual visual of it. Like you said, it was a clay figure. Yeah. It was a real sculpture that they, I guess, staged and set, you know, made, took photographs for but it looks really cool because of that. Yeah, it wouldn't have. And I think, you know, it might have been a conscious effort to say, like, this is something new. We're, we're going in a different direction. You're seeing something new. You're going to hear something new, which I think plays into a decision. I'm sure we're going to talk about in a second to put the longest song at the front of the album. Sure. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess it's just the visceral reaction it evokes with like the second Eddie lobotomy is just something rubs me the wrong way. I like his little skull cap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was I was appreciated that. It seems like it would pop right off of there, having already been perforated in, along those lines once. <laughs> you know, you just have to unscrew the things at the front. Yeah, I don't know if I find that to be the worst. The the 
I don't know which art it is, but there's one with like it looks like like 1980s like computer people on it. Yeah, that's that's Dance of Death. That album came out. Yeah, that has the absolute worst art that I've seen in an Iron Maiden album, but we haven't even talked about that one yet. So. There's there's reasons for that, but we won't get into them yet. But that album came out in 2003, which makes the, makes the artwork even worse. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and just one final note on the artwork. This is a nitpicky thing, but um, if you've seen the Maiden logo, some of the letters hang down below, like the quote unquote line, so to speak. And uh, they started chopping them off and making it flat on the bottom. And that uh, that variant of the Iron Maiden text logo hung around until like 2010. But that's a real nitpicky, just like fan kind of stupid thing. But it's a fact about this album. So I think, though, that I'm ready to get into the tracks unless you guys have any more uh, stuff up front. Well, I'm ready to go. So uh, Sign of the Cross then, right? Yeah, yeah. This is a big opener. Yeah, yeah. 11 minutes long. Who's the expression choir? So basically, you know how... Um, on Seventh Son, they had like a kind of a choral effect on the song Seventh Son that was achieved with keyboards. Mm-hmm. Well, they wanted to have like an actual choir, and they do at the beginning and end of this song, but they had to go through like two or three. Apparently, like they already recorded it with one choir, and then the people like were like, We're revoking the rights because like. I guess choirs are often religious and a lot of people see Iron Maiden as like evil. And so they say that like a couple of people like didn't want to do it. And I don't know. The expression choir is just a choir they got that eventually agreed to do it and that you know, <laughs> they weren't. I tried weren't. to look them up to see who they were, but yeah. But that's just No, no, go go ahead, uh, Jonathan. I was just that's just silly though when you think about it. Like especially by the time 95 hit, maybe even in the 80s, it was more acceptable. But by the time 95 hit, if you think Iron Maiden is evil, like, you really just need to, like, rearrange your perspective on everything. I bet a lot of people did. Sure. <laughs> but, I mean, a lot of people, yeah, a lot of people's frame of reference at this point would still be the number of the beast. Like, I think people who were against them then, for those reasons, a lot of those guys would have still been at this time. No, I guess so, but compared to other things that have happened in society and stuff going on at the times, like if this is your definition of evil, you're in the wrong. I actually have a Blaze Bailey quote from 1995 about that. He says, we had some problems with the choir we used on one of the songs. They took away the rights they'd given us in the first place. It's an 11 minute epic track, which should be our first single. We hadn't planned to release a single because Iron Maiden's all about albums but the record company asked us to do so. Whichever song we choose, it will not be played on the radio because our name conveys something that radio people hate. So whether or not it was true, I think Iron Maiden thought it was true that like that they had, a, there was a section of people like, if not out to get them, like fundamentally opposed to them. So they were not only going to start the album with the longest song on it, but they were going to use that as the single. They didn't use it as the single, though. But that's what he was saying, is they were thinking about using it. That baffles me. That's a confusing choice to me. I mean, they made the right one not do, putting it as the single, but that I don't know why that was in... I'm curious as to why that was in ro- rotation. Well, I know that... Well, what Steve Harris says is that... This is another quote. This is from uh, 2002. 
I think it's a really strong song. That's why we opened the album with it because it's got everything in it bar the kitchen sink. We thought, well, this is us now. And if you don't like it, piss off. Some people didn't get into this era as much because Bruce wasn't there, but I think there are some great songs, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that's the whole reason they wanted to do it, to be like, this is still Iron Maiden. If you don't like it, go fuck yourself, basically. I think that's fine. But I think I think the tracking on this album is one of the things that doesn't quite feel right. And I don't think this song belongs at the front of it. You know, I have less of a problem with this song being the opener as I do with the unbeliever being the closer. And I think like, in trying to think, well, how would I switch it around? It's hard for me to not want to put Sign of the Cross there, but I think it needs to not be the closer. Like, Well, that's to be continued. Okay, fine. So um, what is the, uh, what's the, the book that this is based on? Oh, The Name of the Rose? Yeah. So I, I believe it is inspired by Name of the Rose. I don't think it's really about it. Certainly not as much as the other songs that are about pop culture on this record. I've never read the book, so I don't know anything about it. Well, there's also a movie with Sean Connery and like Christian Slater or something. But the, the concept of the, of the movie, and I assume the book, I haven't read the book, is there's some kind of like murder in a cathedral or a convent or something apologies to listeners who actually know what this is about and aren't just blustering through it like I am but there's like a a priest and his novice sent to investigate it as like an internal church thing oh okay okay and it's like a murder mystery set in this gotcha monastic order situation I think there's also hints of uh the inquisition not only in this song but in that story and the heresy oh yeah to me and this isn't something the band members have ever said, but to me, this song is about the Inquisition. And it starts and it starts and ends from the perspective of the like victim, prisoner, or whatever. But I think the verses could be interpreted to be from the perspective of the Inquisitor. This song does a good job of being able to be about both those things. Like it's obviously a reference to or there is references to the name of the rose in in it. And it's obviously a very heavy Inquisition theme but it also just like evokes like you know the the catholic thing just making the sign of the cross like oh, like crossing yourself yeah yeah so this isn't the first song um with like the losing faith uh motif going on here so, it is the it is the first song well no no but i'm sorry the only song on the album oh definitely not right no i think that there's it probably happens at least twice more yeah, I find that interesting. I, I feel in a way, and this is the start of it, and well, we can talk about it later, but that like this album like has like some way, way more religious overtones than even some of the one albums before that we have had like religious songs on them. Yeah. And it's like, I'm unsure of where like the motivation's coming from. Like, is somebody religious or is it like just about being lost in general? You know? I think it's the latter. Personally, I think it's the latter just because... I think given what was going on in Steve Harris's professional and private life, I think that he was probably like full of a bunch of doubt and questioning. And I think that that's reflected all across this record. In my mind, I think of it very much in the same way I think of the song Losing My Religion by R.E.M. Like the faith is just a metaphor, the relationship that is passed in a lot of ways. Yeah, although losing my religion means something different in that song than it does this one for sure. I know, but I but I just say that's always how I've taken that song without like 
just based on hearing it and not really fully diving into it. You know what I mean? Yeah, to me, losing your religion is like, I'm about to lose my religion over this person. It's like, I, th- I could think of that as like, more like falling in love with someone. Well, yeah, it could work both ways. But I'm just saying the you know, because you're, you're about to get physical with them without being married. You know what I mean? Right. But either way, the faith is kind of a, the religion is kind of a metaphor. Yeah, I, I can see that. Although this is a topic that Maiden also deals with literally in some of their songs as well. Like later on, on Dance of Death, um, the song Monsiger deals with like a religious massacre of, of quote unquote zealots, you know, at the time. Or excuse me, quote unquote uh, heretics. Well, I find that um, Iron Maiden like being so literal in their lyric writing, like fi- like sometimes like hinders me in understanding like their like nuanced stuff going on. So like, that's why I'm saying like, I'm confused as to whether it's like straight up about like, if like, I like, it almost feels like somebody like, especially with like Blaze Bailey coming in too. Like, is there some kind of like more religious thing going on with him? Like, I was like, is this dude a Catholic? Like, I don't know, you know? Well, it's a Steve Harris song. Okay, yeah, I guess so. But Blaze does contribute to the writing of the the songs and the lyrics on this album. Sure. So I don't know. Um, but I guess, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't, sometimes I want, I guess because the, the writing is so literal often that like, I'll take what they're saying literally in a way. On all well, sometimes songs. that's that's yeah. probably right to do. Right. Well. I don't, I don't know how to say what I'm saying. I'm just no, no, you're saying it exactly right. It's, it makes sense what you're saying. I want to take a moment to point out something in this song, and that is the James Bond sounding breakdown. Oh, okay, yeah. I'm... Does nobody know what I'm talking about? No, I think I know what you're talking about. We can listen to it if... Uh... That sounds good. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, I definitely see what you mean about the that having the James Bond sound to it. It totally does. That's interesting. That part of the song for me, um, like this is going to sound pretty bad coming from the fish guy, but it uh, went on a little too long for me. <laughs> I like how you prefaced that. <laughs> right. But like, I was like, I don't know. Like, I was like, is this, it was kind of like attacking me, my eardrums. Yeah, bit. well, I know I, I'm really glad that you said that because I have a whole bunch of notes here about building tension which is like what we talk about with fish all the time and like making your listener uncomfortable a little bit. I kind of think that's the beginning of like what ends up being like a whole two minute build into the solo because, and I've got some timestamps for parts of that here, but I think that's a whole crescendoing like series of movements into the solo. But I want to back up because that occurs like six minutes into the song and the vocal verse doesn't even begin until like almost three minutes in there's like the 11 saintly shrouded men thing where the the voice is almost a whisper but then there's like yeah the intro yeah but when blaze starts singing the like standing alone in the wind and rain i feel like that's like having like cold water thrown in your face like that part of the song where his vocals begin it really like kicks the door in in a way and i'm not saying that's necessarily good or bad but it's like I feel like one of the things about Blaze is his 
his voice is very like declarative and authoritative and he enunciates and it's very like right in your face. And sometimes you want it to back up from that a little, but sure. I can see what you're saying. Sometimes it works though. Right. And I think this is a place where it works really well for me. And they do it again at the end, um, but it's the chorus when he sings the sign of the cross, like that whole thing for the last time. But can we, can we back up and, and listen to like right where he first comes in? Yeah. Yeah, I, I really like the way that Blaze sings this song. There's This song actually is on the live album that just came out from Iron Maiden from last year's performance, um, although they also played it at Rock and Rio. So this is a song that's still in rotation in the Bruce era of the band. Well, this is something that I am going to start now, and we're going to talk about it throughout this album. I think Blaze is much better at singing the verses than he is the choruses or i don't know what it is because we talked about it last time because i knew it was going to come up here but iron maiden does have some pretty repetitive re, uh, refrains at least lyrically musically they're changing things but lyrically they they've consistently had some pretty repetitive refrains and that's not a problem see i think that i think that really began around this time though like i don't find too much of i know brian commented on like one maiden song being repetitive from i think like towards the ending of the song maybe it's power slave or seventh son but to me like from here onward there's actually more of it than there was well, prior i i mean i guess i mean considering i mean i know a decent amount of iron maiden i'm no i know where matt level and at this point brian might be starting to surpass me but I I think about one of my favorite songs, which is one that hasn't been covered on this podcast. And I know that it's kind of repetitive, but its repetitive nature works for me. What song and is that? The, uh, Fear of the Dark. Oh, the, yeah, that's a that's a fan. Which favorite. is that? Which is the album right before this? And the album isn't as good as the song, but that's a it's a repetitive refrain when you sit there and think about it. Yeah, but not like some of the stuff here man i mean and and honestly not like i mean some of the songs i love like and you know we talked in the last episode about how repetition's not always bad um, right i think some of the more repetitive stuff that maiden does i like there's a specific example or two on this album that i definitely do not um we haven't gotten there yet i love plays on sign of the cross from start to finish i love the chorus i love the verses i love the slight vibrato in into some of the lines and I like the swoop downs and backups like I mean he's I think he's got a style and for better or for worse like you may not like it but I think he is a like I would rather hear him sing this than Bruce sing this and I feel that way about some of the other tracks too yeah I I, I could understand I don't want to hear Bruce try to sing this I don't know if there is a live version that I could but I don't want I don't care enough to hear him I think there's nothing wrong with it I think just the I don't know I don't like, like I said the verses are, are the better parts of his vocals to me 
Well, the whole reason they did Sign of the Cross and also Klansman, which is on the album after this, on their most recent tour is because they're like, people don't give these songs enough credit. Yeah, and the, musically, the song is cool. I liked that the tension and build you were talking about that starts with the James Brown and goes to the thing. I like I like his, the vocals you just highlighted. I think this they, it's very weird that they started with this song, but he, it is true. They did throw a little bit of everything in. They're showing that they're experimenting with a lot of stuff here. Right. Yeah, I guess that's my point. Brian, you got uh, you looked like you were about to say something there. Oh, well, you know, I, I think that like what I was saying about that part being a bit too long is I think like in past Iron Maiden songs, like I've heard them like mix up those parts with like like more sh like a shreddy kind of soloist style rather mm -hmm. than like um, that, like, you know, heavy chord kind of metal, I guess. Right. You know, what else to call it? Where you know, dun, 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 you know. Yeah, there's and like I, a chugging almost. Yeah, if, to me, I find I guess I like find, I find the iron. Yeah, I find the Iron Maiden um, stuff that like plays around with like soloing and stuff in those zones uh, more exciting to me. That's all. Well, would you guys mind if we heard some of the guitar from this then? Because I've. Um... Oh yeah, well, I had a clip from um, Seven Fifty Five. How, because we always talk about things sounding like video games uh -huh. and it made me feel it made me feel like uh, this is definitely this is not the song to the game obviously but it made me feel like i was like playing river city ransom or something yeah would you mind if we backed it up to 744 because i've got yeah we could just go through but my point would be 755 to 810 Yeah, I think to me that's like the um, that's like the getting ready for launch. Yeah, that part made me feel like I was kicking ass. Yeah, it it makes me think about how some of these video game composers probably are really influenced by metal. Yeah, I I I think that that's probably right in the in the chicken egg thing because particularly if you think about like when like chip tuned or like whatever nintendo music like think about when nintendo was popular versus like what type of music was around yeah yeah mid 80s to mid 90s is this time feel for the earlier video game composers really yeah but i do think that it, it evokes that because it's almost like a that doo -doo 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 -doo. it's almost like a um right before the boss fight starts mm -hmm. you know what i mean but I really think that it serves that that part where the the trebly guitars come in well because it's almost like an explosion. I think when the solo starts, like I really think the song kind of takes lift there. Right. Yeah, I agree. That's my favorite part of Sign of the Cross um, is from like where about where we listen to like onwards. There's like a Celtic sort of thing going on at like nine minutes too, which I like. Like yeah, the rhythm guitar in that section is good too. Let's check that out. Okay. Yeah, you know, that, that section speaks to something I've said about Maiden before, too, which is that I like that 
particularly in their longer composed pieces. But I like that instead of just going straight into a guitar solo, often they compose a riff that bridges you into it or sometimes into and out of it. And I think that's kind of still what's going on in that nine to nine and a half minute mark of the song before it like chugs back down and the sign of the cross chorus comes in again. Yeah, they found a way, a way to like make it all connect, piece it together. Right, but I yeah, mean, it's, I it's like, like a lot of times it's just in, in rock songs, it's chords and then just solo and then, then the solo stops, you know? I like that they make more of an event of it as well yeah, I as I mean, that. creating an on and off ramp to it. Yeah, and that like, what they were doing there is kind of like the more, like what I was kind of saying about, like I wasn't as big of a fan of like the, the movements at the beginning as I was later in the song. And that, that part was awesome, I thought. And then, you know, it, I said it was like Celtic, but it could, it's also sort of like video gamey and stuff too. I don't know. Yeah. It's got some things going. It's, it was still just a, it kind of gave me like the vision of like, either like, like doing like the weird leprechaun dance around the mushrooms or, uh, or otherwise, uh, I don't know, getting ready for some video game action or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it did man. make me want to play some video games. <laughs> Usually when I picture like music like this that sounds video gamey, I picture like like the Airman stage from Mega Man. Where you're like jumping on platforms and they're disappearing and you're shooting little like beige colored like pellets at people. There you go. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but then I start thinking about Crash Man's music and it's a totally different feel. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, the Mega Man music is great. And uh it goes a lot. Of, it's yeah, I think like that's the thing too, is like even in talk about in this, we're we're making like broad generalizations about what video games sound like. like even <laughs> even within the classic Nintendo era, there's plenty of stuff that doesn't sound like what we're kind of talking about when we say that. You know, right? Yeah, it's worth bringing up though because Iron Maiden has a lot of that sound. Oh, for sure. Um, this doesn't relate directly to this song, but also it's worth noting that. Um, Volume four, the Black Sabbath album, begins with its longest song, uh, Wheels of Confusion, which is Interesting. like, eight, it's just over eight minutes long. Well, I know, I know this has been done before. I just feel like it's an interesting choice in general when it is done, but certainly interesting choice when you're introducing a new lead singer. Yeah, you know, I, I guess I had known that in the background of my mind, too, because as you guys know, I love Sabbath, but um, I didn't know that until I just happened to be listening to these guys who just started a Black Sabbath podcast, and they're on like the fourth episode, and they, they mentioned that. I was like, oh, crazy. So, I, I mean, I think like whether or not it works here, it could work. <laughs> you know? I don't find the song placement like too bad on this album like i mean i I, maybe it's something i don't think about as much but i don't mind side of the cross being on there and like rocking out the beginning i can understand it's an interesting choice but yeah it's like i don't know i I feel like there's been some long i guess maiden usually has a short song to start their album and then i think they felt they had to make a statement coming out of the gate yeah like you were saying because of the new singer well lord of the flies then yeah shit there was something else i was gonna say but i lost it oh yeah 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 so to the just speaking to the track order thing, I didn't assign the other three songs to you guys, but they actually recorded 14 songs when they were writing this album. And three of them were left off. And they're on the Japanese CD, I guess it's two CDs, but it's just simply because a CD would only hold so much material at the time. 
So they just picked three songs, didn't have them on there. And on the Japanese version, they are the last three songs. So there's a hidden argument here about like, could you have used different songs altogether? Let alone now, are just... they are they actually the last three songs, or are they just tacked on to the end of the album? Well, I don't know. This is the the what we have as the X Factor is the official X Factor, right? So I don't think those actually. I think those just come at the end because they're not on the album. I don't think they're yeah. Like it's convention consciously placed. It was convention for a while, at least for Japanese CDs to um, to have a bonus track because actually, when in the Paul Diano era, there's a song called Twilight Zone, and on the Japanese pressing of it or version of the thing it's called details of the twilight zone because when they faxed over the thing explaining the twilight zone that was the header was details of twilight zone and the japanese company thought that was the name of the song uh-huh. but the whole reason that was even there is because they like demanded for there to be a bonus track right. so it may not be relevant it, the, the fact that that exists doesn't mean that they're supposed to be at the end they just are if you listen to that from start to finish so that does matter you know what i mean yeah okay so anyway lord of the flies then yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right uh, yeah yeah it, this song reminded me a little bit of uh 22 acacia avenue huh i've never made that connection it was like i, I was some part in it where like i don't know i love 22 acacia, acacia avenue that's yeah i don't know like it, it had some some traits of some older maiden songs maybe is what i was saying but like that's the song i thought of while i was taking this note mm-hmm but clearly this is about right uh lord of the flies the book the novel by william golden yes uh, right so this was written by steve and yannick and uh yeah it was inspired by the novel which was loosely based on actual events although like the story in real life is like much less crazy and has like a much happier ending than like the book or movie lord of the flies where they all like became like they like reverted to this primal order and like one of them like became basically a murderer and stuff. Right. Yeah. I think the real kids that got stranded on the island like like built shelters and were like had a division of labor and were all like getting along surprisingly well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In the book, I remember that the one kid, Sam, like freaks out and then the the pig head that they stab into the ground like starts talking to him. <laughs> that was that was awesome. Yeah. I remember my um my English teacher that taught the book at the time, because you know, they pass around the conch shell. Yeah. Uh, and I think it was like for who gets to talk or something, but she kept pronouncing it conch and it made me really, really angry. Uh, so, so that, go ahead, John. I was just going to say right from the beginning, it's not through the whole song, but doesn't that, that opening few seconds remind you of like later era who? Maybe mid era. I can see, I can see that Yannick wrote that riff and then took it to Steve Harris, who basically wrote the rest of the song. Huh. Uh, but that, like, and I actually, in a second, we, we can listen to the intro because I wanted to talk about when the band comes in at the end of that. Uh. But um, this might be my favorite Iron Maiden song of the Blaze Bailey era, and I know that that's going to sound crazy, but. No, I noted it as a standout of this album. I mean, it's hooky as hell, but it works. Yeah, it's also still in the Maiden rotation with Bruce now. See, I would be interested in hearing Bruce sing this one. Not as much with Sign of the Cross, but this one, I would. He sings the um, 
he sings the verses in the same octave as Blaze and then sings the chorus an octave higher than him. So here, maybe we should, maybe we should look that up. But for now, um, you guys cool with listening to the beginning of this song? Yeah. Yep. So once again, I think this is a song that sort of has a moment where it kind of like leaps to life in the beginning. So I think I was way off with Acacia Avenue. Um, I think it make, it reminds me a little bit of Prowler, like when it, when the first guitar comes in. Or I think maybe that, the, yeah, the chord the chords are similar. Or is it or is it Acacia Avenue? I don't I can't remember. I think no, no. I think you're thinking of Twenty Two Acacia Avenue, the very yeah, okay. beginning. I've got to find my way. Dun, no, that's dun, Prowler. Dun. That's Prowler. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that's what I'm thinking about. It's very, well, it's that, a similar chords because it's got the but yeah, yeah, it's like more staccato and it's got a different okay. feel to it. But I could see singing that over there, like the the melody would. <laughs> yeah, when I heard it, I was like, this reminds me of something earlier in Iron Maiden, and it was that. But yeah, I, I do agree with Jonathan that it has some like Whoish kind of influence on that guitar. Like, what is that effect, or how do they make that guitar sound? So that's just, there's not an effect other than just distortion there. Uh, or, well, if there's there is, not a delay, no, one is not necessary to do that. I could, it probably wouldn't be a good idea for the podcast, but I could grab a guitar and show you. But what he's doing is he's double stop. It's two strings at a time playing a note. So, duh, and then it's open. Gotcha. Okay. You could play that whole thing with one finger, as a matter of fact. Cool. But I, I think it's a cool riff. And I like that like halfway into it, this like massive bass comes in too, that's playing underneath of it. Like I think Steve Harris is great in this song. This is a highlight song of the album for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, this was a single, by the way. This makes sense as a single. Yeah, for sure. So um, one thing that's about kind of weird about it, it doesn't really matter that I noticed, like most songs go verse, chorus, verse, chorus, but this song goes verse, verse, chorus, chorus. So like he gets all the verses out of the way before the chorus even comes in. And then it's you know, just- I, I didn't notice that. I've listened to it so many times, I didn't even notice that. Yeah, it's weird, right? I mean, it doesn't matter, but it's just like a thing about it that I noticed. I was like, huh. So do you guys want to try and find a clip of Bruce doing this? All right, so I've decided I want a combination of Bruce and Blaze's vocals. <laughs> yeah, I think he has actually, like, that song, I think I could tolerate Bruce on or Blaze on, because I really like how he, like, took it up a register in some spots. I like it, Bruce's interpretation. He's just such a good singer, it's impossible to argue with, you know? Yeah, I think I'm just siding with Bruce, but it's because he's just so much better than most singers, I guess. Yeah, I just don't think I'd want him on Sign of the Cross as much. But again, we didn't just listen to 
that. So it's just not a fair comparison. Word. I also feel like, you know, to Blaze's credit, I feel like you can tell that he is always trying as hard as he can. Yeah, I don't know if it's a, I don't know if it's like a Blaze's bad thing. I just prefer Bruce and I think I prefer Deanna. Oh, overall, you mean? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. No, there's He's no... definitely number three on the list. I'm me. not arguing that Blaze Bailey is better than Bruce Dickinson. Like, that would be madness. But I'm is saying. He better there's... than Paul Deanna? You mean like when Paul Deanna was in Maiden? Yeah, let's just not say like Paul Deanna, like fat. As the Iron drunk. Maiden vocalist. Yeah, I reach for the Deanna albums more often than the Blaze albums. But I will say, if I could take all of the material from X Factor and its follow-up, Virtual Eleven, and pick like 12 songs, I think that that album would be excellent. To me, I think Blaze Bailey's starting to touch on like a like an early new metal sound. Maybe, <laughs> but I think that the heavy bass and stuff is probably contributing to that. Like, I think that dude from Disturbed like is di- like directly influenced by Blaze Bailey. Like things oh, like that. Like to me, like some of that stuff is very similar. I don't know. It's just the way he handles it. You know, I don't think he's bad. I'm just saying some of the sound is like in that genre for me. Like it's like an early proto, that kind of singer. Yeah. I don't. That's I'm, that, I'm just telling you, that's how I feel. Sometimes. Yeah, no, I, I understand what you're saying. I don't, I don't feel that way about Blaze Bailey. I think Blaze Bailey is like in his own weird little niche kind of, he's like, he's like if, Danzig and Meatloaf fucked in a way, except not like an operatic guy like Meatloaf. I'm just saying he kind of looks like him. Yeah, I don't know. I I don't necessarily agree with either of you. <laughs> uh, I can see where both of you are coming from, though. Like, I think to Brian's point, this is 1995. Metal, it is a bad time for metal, but metal's about to change or become a bunch of different subgenres that it never was before and and in a way it already it already has begun to like in america right exactly but you know especially like what two three years before after this new metal is like the dominant form of music for a while so i can see where maybe this influenced that and and things going on in the ethos affected blades bailey i don't necessarily hear it as much i also i hear danzig in one of these songs and i understand where people are coming from with that but i still don't think he's danzig that much either no i think that's a lot of it was like his look at the time though because he had like those black sideburns and the long black hair and it was like kind of like a muscular or built kind of dude he wanted to be logan from Marvel or Comics? Weapon X, yeah, yeah. I don't know because of the sign. You know what I'm talking about. Oh yeah, because they're kind of they're kind of pointy like that, aren't they? The Blaze yeah. Bailey sideburns. He's still, and you know, it's Wilson. weird. It's weird because Blaze Bailey is like now 100 bald, but he still has those fucking sideburns, and they're like gray. But it's like the only hair on his head. <laughs> I do not want to be old with sideburns. Yeah. You wouldn't mind it if you were Blaze Bailey. I guess not. Uh, all right. So anybody got anything else on Lord of the Flies other than this is the beginning of the uh, the whoa oh that happened on the album a lot? No, I think I think I'm good. I thought I thought the intro had a nice meter to it. 
Um, and I liked, I liked it. Like I thought the song was pretty, pretty strong. I have a little bit of like a fondness for the way that this chorus is written lyrically. Cause it, it's so simple, but it's clever because it repeats itself, but with like a slight change. Cause it's, um, something within us we are lord of the flies and then it's something willing us to be lord of the flies and i don't know i think they, just that subtle variation like stops it from being as repetitive as i guess it otherwise would be Does and other sense? moments of this album yeah but i'm just talking about like within this space of this yeah album. yeah definitely all right cool so before um before we listen to man on the edge can um can i drop the Wolfsbane song on you guys? Uh, sure. Jonathan's already heard it, but I want to listen to Manhunt because I think like this is the appropriate time to talk about this. Like this song reminds me the most of that than any other on the album, if that makes sense. But additionally, I think you'll find Blaze doing some vocal things here that he doesn't do with Maiden and vice versa. Okay. But yeah, I just wanted to like to bring that up in reference to the type of song we're going to hear and sort of like the music that's adjacent to this that I see Blaze kind of leading towards. It's like this direction more than like a new metal thing. Like I was remarking to Jonathan that it's like almost borders on like psychobilly. Well, I, I can see that, but something about the way Iron Maiden is presenting Blaze Bailey is causing him to sing differently than he is in that. I and that's why I, that. I and that's why I that's said right. at the beginning, that's why I said at the beginning he was misused. Yeah, well, I think it, it would be hard to see what could have been done differently. I mean, I can see some things being done differently in terms of like repeat some choruses a few less times and stuff. But yeah, it's certainly the X Factor is certainly not a perfect record, and I've never maybe, maybe they just needed a few more of the more hard fast rockers on this album well that's why i brought this song up now because going into man on the edge which is the other single i thought the, at least it matched sort of that frantic pace of manhunt it almost didn't sound like an iron maiden song to me well it's hard for me to talk about man on the edge also um on the edge of the flies it's all the same but it's well, hard for me to talk about this song because it has such direct ties to something that makes absolute no sense. Which is what? The movie I Falling hear, Down? Well, yes and no. Uh -huh. I, I can't hear this song without thinking about Wayne's World. Now, the reason I say I can't hear this song without thinking of Wayne's World is because I had a VHS copy of Wayne's World and at the beginning, there was a trailer for falling down oh nice. the, the michael douglas film falling down yeah that's one of my favorite movies really it's really really awesome man like I, i'm not saying it's like a masterpiece or anything but if you haven't seen it you should watch it it's really good i think people could draw some really really socially backward conclusions from the movie falling down but well, basically the it's like if you gave devin's dad like some steroids and yeah you should never do that 
that's what I mean. So that's why it's so good because it's like it's like <laughs> watching like a it's like watching like an old man Mac on like a crime spree. Oh yeah, so I mean, it's basically the of, most entertaining thing ever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. As long as you suspend disbelief, but I will say it offers a pretty cynical view of the modern world. For and, sure. Uh, you know, urban living or whatever. Again, it's just hilarious, man. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah. So. I don't know. I lost what I was going to say. Sorry. No, that's okay. I, I was going to say this is the beginning of the Maiden songs that are like, my note here says sometimes Maiden songs can be almost absurdly literal. And this is like sort of an example of that. It's only the second worst offender on the album in my mind, but they do sing the title of the movie for the chorus. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And the, the verse is the plot of the movie as well. So I would think that if you love that movie, as much Brian that you would be sort of into this song you know no I do like this song it's pretty hilarious I mean because it's just I mean if you like falling down you're gonna like the (laughs) the man on the edge I also though I mean I think the song's pretty dope Uh, it has like a really good uh, culmination I don't know how to describe it exactly but like what happens in like the last like like well I guess we could play a clip if you you probably it's sort of toward the end of the song you want to play like some clips first Oh no, go ahead. Cue it up. There's like a pretty interesting, like, it's like hard, almost hard to catch if you don't pay attention. So, like, an interesting little bass reel. Oh, is it the yeah. like where it goes, uh, like, the chromatically upwards, like, that thing? Yeah, yeah. And then, um, and then, like, it all cut the whole song kind of like crescendos. And I think it, I think it works really well, actually. But see, it's songs like this one and the last one where Blaze really shines. Oh, I think Blaze is great on this song. Although I will say this is another one that Bruce has performed. And I'm sure it's fine, but I think Blaze sounds great for this song. I think the bass is incredibly good like throughout this song as well. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, you could argue that it's like kind of like the, the most like mindless fun track on the album. So there's not like... I mean, if you're looking for a quote-unquote, like, substance, you know, I mean, it's, there's nothing, like, profound here, but this is still a good song, and I like it, and I think yeah, it's a great single. But if you think about it, it's thematic with the album that A Man on the Edge of something, you know? Well, interestingly, this doesn't have Steve Harris in the credits. It's a Blaze Yannick song, but it still fits. And I think, like, had Steve Harris seen that movie, he would be like, I get some of what has made this Michael Douglas character snap and decide to, like, start, like, using anti-tank weapons and stuff or whatever. Well, yeah, you so far you've got Sign of the Cross, which is, like, uh, one of those, like, loss of faith songs and, like, I'm falling apart, like, who am I? Then you got, like, Lord of the Flies, like, kind of saying, like, is, like, who, who, are, who are men, really, or who is anybody on the inside? right like and then and then you get to this one where it's like now it's like i'm boiling over so like you've gone through these two like conversations i don't know i see it like i see like sort of an arc of storytelling that's like sort of stressful and bitter or like for sure something like that yeah i think too going back to lord of the flies it's almost like steve harris could be saying like because the way he writes i don't care for this world anymore uh i just want to live my own fantasy and he's talking about like we don't need a code of morality. It's almost like he's saying if I was like a primal 
living a primal existence, I wouldn't have to worry about all this like complicated emotions I'm feeling. Sure. You know, because it's like like almost saying that it's better to be Lord of the Flies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Well, anybody else got uh, anything on Man on the Edge? There are music videos of it. That's another thing. Well, I mean, I'd like to know without having is the, the, what's the music video like? I don't need to see it, but what's so there's a couple of music videos for it, and one of them there might be three, but one of them is just like a joke thing somebody made where it's just like people falling down for th- you know three and a half minutes or whatever. Oh, but, okay. Um, hang on, just one second because I have it in the trivia here in detailed discography of the beast. Okay, so according to the detailed discography of the Beast, there were three videos made for this song. One is filmed on location at Masada, Israel, and that's the one that I've seen. They're on like a rooftop. Uh, the second is a more cinematic video of the band performing as a man throws himself off a building, and the third is the one that I was talking about earlier with the, just like people falling down. It was like a promo joke thing. That's that's funny. Yeah. All right. So should we uh, should we move along? yeah let's talk about fortunes of war please yeah okay so i'm just gonna tell you guys i do not like this song <laughs> okay well good but let's i'm uh, <laughs> before, <laughs> before we get into how terrible this song is will somebody do me a favor and ask me blaze bailey what kind of music i've been listening to lately what kind of music have you been listening to late, uh, lately blaze I've been feeling trance like all the time. <laughs> you should have done a little hair toss there at the end. <laughs> uh, but when he sings that line, I know what he's saying, but it totally makes it sound like I'm feeling trance like all the time. Yeah, not like he's in a trance, but yeah. like he, he's feeling the vibes of the trance music. Yeah. That's a funny picture if you can, if you know what Blaze <laughs> Bailey looks like too. So this is where I wrote is this a breakup album? And I mean, obviously it is in one regard because he was going through a divorce at the time, but I wonder if it's residually about a breakup with Bruce and Adrian as much as it is about his wife. Oh, that's interesting. Do you know what I mean? Because the fortunes of war would imply that he has the iron maiden name still and it's still his thing but the dark side of it is that he lost them right it's not what is it it's not worth what it was worth before or whatever i don't know if that was on purpose but i will say there are probably some people out there who have been in like war scenarios in real life that probably don't appreciate like that think that maybe this analogy is a little callous you know, if it's meant to be like a use of this as an allegory or a, an analogy for a breakup, it seems like a little extreme. I think you can write songs about whatever the hell you want, but I can see that rubbing some people the wrong way, maybe. Well, I don't know, but I mean, it seems like there's, I've listened to a little bit of the other Blaze Bailey stuff too, just a couple of songs, right? Mm-hmm. And he seems to have like a somewhat of a fascination with like history and war in like the same way some of like like maiden does but like in a more accurate way and i don't know if that like since he was in the band like they've sung these songs that are like because this isn't the only one right there's the aftermath too yeah but the aftermath has a blaze credit and this is steve harris 
Okay, but you said Blaze was involved in the writing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, obviously the whole bit was a collaborative thing, but just in terms of who they credited, like I, I know that Blaze wrote specifically some lyrics for the aftermath. Right. And I, and I think they're they are actually like somewhat poet, some of the more poetic lyrics on the whole album. Well, sure, but um, I guess I'm just saying that there's like more than one thing about like soldiers and what happens to them after war on this album. I agree. I th I think the song The Aftermath arguably makes this song redundant, except that in The Aftermath, I'm more inclined wait, to believe... Wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. Fortunes of War makes Fortunes of War redundant. Well, it, yeah, it's redundant in the way it's composed and the way it's sung, but what I'm saying is, topically speaking... Sure. Although... I just, I had to say that. Yeah, and I actually wrote down, did anyone count how many times he said Fortunes of War? And I wish I had, because... I counted the amount of times that Fish said he's got a knife or whatever, like in. in oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I bet yeah. it's a similar number because it's like. Yeah. I just, I don't really care when people repeat stuff. I just didn't think he sounded very good repeating it. No, well, that too. But that's what I was saying is sometimes, sometimes repetition works and sometimes it doesn't. Like we talked about with that Fish song, Waiting in the Velvet Sea, it worked there. The repetition does not work at all here. It just does not. It's weird how insistent they are upon it, too. Exactly. The song itself could be shorter, and that would solve some of the problem. Yeah, the music to the song isn't bad, but the but the fortunes of war just ruins it. Can we listen to what I think is the best part of the song? Sure, but before we do that, before we listen to the best part, I just want to share a little behind the scenes with everybody. I had listened to this album all the way through once mm -hmm. and then I listened to my second one and I got to this song and I texted Matt, Hey, have you ever heard about the fortunes of war? And he's like, I don't know. Just like that Iron Maiden song. And I was like, Oh, does he say that in a song? Yeah. I'm pretty sure. I I'm pretty sure I laughed at that though. <laughs> Cause I didn't, there was no context. I didn't know what you're talking about. And then I figured out pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah it's but, so uh, much it's so much well and the thing is like this clip that i'm about to play too that i think is the best part of the song for some reason they insist on bringing the chorus in again like it's not the same melody but it's the same words and it's still i know and it's, it's like why are you doing that? if it were any other words or the words had more value it would be cool but it doesn't work because of the the way it's repetitive yeah well, and the, the, is the song the song starts out like with mostly like bass for like the first two minutes right and bass and drums and then there's sort of like a left right left march thing going on with the drums like right after that opens up mm -hmm. so i don't know i don't have a time stamp on that but there are some things to talk about like musically in this song which might have caused it to become like as repetitive as it is too but I I do think generally the music isn't as bad. It would it would be, I don't know. Well, I think too, like the I mean, you know, I've been talking about how there's points where the songs kind of like spring to life, and I think that happens when the solo comes in at this song. But I but I don't think that it's enough to pay off all of that repetition and and tension that's built from him just saying fortunes of war. Well, so there's a lot of guitar. There's a lot of guitar in that beginning spot too. Yeah, the intro is nice. I, I like the intro too. But it's really bass heavy. And then I also want to point out, like, normally, I, I know it was mentioned already on this episode, but 
normally I don't have as big of a problem with woes, but they're terrible in this song. Yeah, I like them in some of the songs on this album, but I just yeah. So I guess I thought the beat, like when they really bring like the the heaviness into the song, like his like a it's like a left 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 right left kind of like repetitive marching thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that had to do with like the the soldiers and like the the fortunes of war and all that. Yeah, it does have kind of like a plodding motion to it. Yeah, it's like a like a almost. It's not a march in like the drum sense, but it it's a march in the sense of like left, left. It's like a you know what I mean, like yeah, or like a rowing drum on a on a ship. Yeah, it has, it's it's like to keep. It has a feeling of keeping like a group of people in in motion or formation, which I I kind of liked that a part about it. Yeah, well, again, this circles back to some of my main thoughts about this album is there within this song, there are like parts that really work. Like, I like that riff, and I like when that guitar comes in, even though it doesn't sound as Iron Maiden y as I think of Iron Maiden, but it works really well. But then just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, let's listen to that part I was talking about earlier, uh, if you guys don't mind. That is the, the like brighter, faster part of the song. Okay. Yeah. Can we listen to the first solo too? I really like the um, the rhythm guitar and the bass doing the gallop underneath of that too. Like that's pure pure signature maiden. I was gonna say that's one thing is that they. I, I mean, I was reading some critique or something, and they were saying they might have even been making the case for this, but they were saying one of the complaints was that the the maiden gallop felt a lot of absence on this album, mm-hmm. and it's definitely there in the bass and the rhythm for sure. Yeah, it, it just shows up in like some spots that aren't particularly like iconic or like in songs that kind of get lost in the shuffle, I suppose. Yeah, I liked the guitar tone like leading into the solos there in that bridge. I thought that was really neat. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, I was really into the uh, first solo. Like I thought the first solo was a nice standout. The second one's awesome too, but it's very, it was as maidenly as like a lot of solos. I thought that first one, like with that, um, like toward, I don't know what he was doing, but it was like some muting or something that was real crazy. It was like real fast. And it had like a, fun, it had a different different kind of sound I hadn't heard before. And like, I thought that was cool. Right, yeah, at a certain point in the Maiden thing, cause we've listened to a bunch of their albums now and they all have, I mean, almost every song has like a ripping guitar solo. So like one tends to start to look for variety in the solos. 
Right. And I thought there was some good variety in that. I thought there was something neat in that first one that I hadn't heard before. Yeah. It like sets it yeah. apart. They, they can tend to blend together if you're mm. not paying careful attention. Yeah. But I, I, I also had a note like, um, I didn't chime in much on it, but I did have a note that I didn't really appreciate Blaze and uh, Fortunes. Yeah, this Fortunes is of War. this is my clear least favorite song on the album. And if I if I had the other three tracks to work with, this would be one that would be like on the chopping block for me, probably. Okay. Yeah, I mean, again, if they could have they could have reworked this song into something way better. Like it's not like there's nothing Blaze. to salvage from this. Yeah, you're right. No, exactly. They could have. This is what I'm saying: is something's just not quite working because they could have made something way better here with what parts a lot of what they have here yeah i would say like the first thing to do is to eliminate that chorus or have it only happen once yeah exactly <clears throat> well i'm personally pretty ready to move away from this track are you guys ready to move on or is there any any sure. more any more parting volleys no okay so the um the next track we're going to talk about is look for the truth which is written by Blaze, Steve, and Yannick. And I have a quote about it that I'm going to read you guys. Is it, look under the rocks, look in the trees, look for the truth, look and you shall see. That's the quote I just wrote for it. That works. Uh, well, this isn't a very profound quote or anything. You know, It's just them saying what the song's about. So Blaze Bailey says, look for the truth was an idea, really. Lyrically, it's kind of a recurring nightmare about those dark times that we have when you're trying to face off to who you are and, what, and what's going on inside. And Steve Harris says about it, uh, another song I really like, I guess this is from an interview, is Look for the Truth, which I had a little bit to do with, but it was mainly Blaze and Yannick. It's an excellent song, the quiet beginning, the way Blaze's voice comes through, it's amazing. So what do you guys think about the song as well as those two takes on it i don't know i've i don't think this is a bad song but it didn't like super move me it's interesting that it was mostly written by blaze bailey because there's another time on this album where the lyrics don't feel very iron maiden to me but they make more sense in the context of this album but something about and i don't think this is a bad song but something about it just doesn't fit the context of the album to me that much. I think it's it's got that intro, introspective thing going on that kind of, to me, dovetails with the religious questioning, like the questioning one's faith, questioning what's going on in you. I mean, I think it like conceptually ties in fine. I mean, maybe it sounds a little out of place or something to you, but... Yeah, no, I, you're right about that. The conceptual does, but just the the song just doesn't feel in the mood of the music doesn't feel right for the rest of the album in a lot of ways to me i'm not sure that i appreciate iron maiden talking about their own shit well, the, <laughs> so the so the first the first quote that blaze bailey quote was from the x-factor launch party that mtv was making a documentary of oh no no i don't i don't mean that i mean like i i, I think i want like their emotional turmoil to be less in the album yeah, oh, you want oh, them to write oh, their yeah, songs like, I don't about. think they're a type of band that needs that, right? Like, I thought you were saying that when people interviewed them, they should be like, no, I'm not going to no, answer no, that. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah, they're like, we're not going to say anything. Yeah, no, none of your goddamn business. <laughs> no, please, I hope they don't do that, because I think that would help make our jobs easier. But uh, no, I just, I feel like something to me about Iron Maiden gets lost when like 
it sounds like they're starting to bring the personal into it or overtly personal at least overtly yeah i mean you can always have like personal i mean obviously well especially when it's you're all of the personal things you're talking about are like utter turmoil that you're having like in your brain right plus you know what i mean i guess i'm just saying this album's getting like a little emo for me um (laughs) as far as iron man goes like Mm -hmm. i want to hear like i like i like hearing about like vikings chopping off heads and shit yeah no, absolutely. And I, I do think that this song is a marked departure. Like, this is the first time that's happened, really. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, agree. It's happened in spots like Wasted Years, which we haven't talked about. is pretty reflective. But like, it's the whole fucking thing on this album. Yeah, this song's a lot about like, to me, about like self-awareness and mm-hmm. uh, things like that. Um, I don't like it. And I don't like, I really don't like the OEO part. I was, one of my notes, that, one of my notes like, is, how do we feel about the O's? Yeah, I, I, I just I just wrote I just wrote whoa here. This isn't one I have strong feelings one way or the other about on the woes, but I, I well, wrote that, it down because I, I was trying to identify which songs did it. and didn't. Yeah, I'm I'm yeah, I just about chose the that I just chose that I didn't, but you know that's I don't dislike this song, but it's not a highlight for me. I do like the vocal intro to the song for like uh, the O's began. Well, why don't we hear that? Okay. I refuse. So here's another thing before we do hear that. Sure. Is there's an inordinate amount of songs on, on this album that start with like a trebly guitar being played like in finger picking style and then like a, a low drudging bass solo. Mm-hmm. And then a drum going boom. Space. And then it's like burr. boom. Right. Yeah. So there's like a bunch of songs on this album that like have that, that intro and I don't think Iron Maiden's always done that, right? Like, No, I don't think they have at all. I think that this album represented Steve Harris experimenting with some bass things that um, actually, you know what? Can we, um, before we hear the beginning of Look for the Truth, can we hear the beginning of the red and the black off of Book of Souls? Just the, just the bass intro. Okay, if you got a reason, let's do it. Well, it's because of what you're saying, like all of the, a lot of the songs have like bass intros. And I was saying earlier, he's been playing more bass chords. So do you see how like that's sort of like a better version of what some of the things that are going on in this album in a way? Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. And I I, I there's some there's a couple really, really interesting bass parts on this album altogether. Like that are like out of like I mean almost like out of step with what has been going on with Iron Maiden. And I have right. another one coming up. But but yeah, no, I'm not I, I'm not hating on it. I just thought it was like I haven't heard this many songs on an album start like that. Like <laughs> that t- with with Maiden yet where it's like that that like low bassy solo with like the tinny kind of guitar and then or even just go- using then, up a and minute then enter- and a half. entering that intro and then you spend like a, a minute on that and then right. you go into that yeah that like really heavy rock mm-hmm. you know what I mean so I don't I don't know it's like a, it's a definitely a new direction for Iron Maiden so let's um let's go back and listen to that uh, Blaze intro uh, vocal thing for Look for the Truth. Yeah. 
So Brian, that's probably one of the spots that you you are thinking like sounds kind of like new metal almost maybe, or am I wrong? Uh, a little bit. I have another spot down the road too, but I I could see that me me thinking that. Well, I because I hadn't thought of it until you mentioned it, and I like re-listening to it. I'm like I could see the arguing that there's like a tinge of that in there. That's not totally insane. Yeah, but I think he still I still think he sings well there. No, I thought he did great in the uh, in the intro and all that, and I thought he sang fine. And I just can't stand the OEOs. I mean, yeah, that's fair. I've just got to be real about that. I was like, man, I just want this song to end, so I'll stop doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think that, I think another thing that we maybe should should mention is overall the lengths of the songs on this album are kind of long. I mean, you've got a lot of stuff that's floating in the like. Everything seems to be like four thirty or on. Yeah, there's no truly short songs here. Um, in fact, yeah, and I think that's the, the one of the things that's off about this album is I think they could have cut some stuff. Actually, not the whole songs, but like, "Man on the Edge" is the shortest song, and it's four minutes and ten seconds. But other than that, everything's over five minutes. And I mean, right. there's like, there's one, two, three, four, five, like six songs that are over six minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, yeah, some of it's just, some of the songs are just a little too long. I mean, I'm pretty tapped out on Look for the Truth. Yeah. Okay. I'm also not going to, I'm not going to say that songs are too long. It's just not, I don't have a right to, so. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not like these songs are long due to having like, <laughs> big sweeping instrumental jams in them no no no, no. it's they're yeah, some, I mean, some of them are like sign of the cross is long because it's an epic i mean i'm not saying that none of the length here is justifiable but a lot of it could be cut down no i mean they definitely get i don't mind a long song at all it's just some like i don't think it's a detriment to the first song it's just a detriment to its placing but other than that like i don't i don't think the length is bad i just think it's bad to start it like that but i mean it might be personal why it's there, so I may be the idiot, but, but like songs like this could have easily used a little bit of a cut. I think there's some songs that are that should have just been shorter that they just tacked a little bit too much onto. Yeah, and I mean it's not because we you know we talk about good and bad repetition. It, it's not just the repetition that makes them too long because like there's some repetitive Hawkwind songs that I like, but they establish like a stoner like groovy riff that they kind of like repeat around. Yeah, they just, it's like I, I keep coming back to it, but it's just something slightly off about it. It's abrasive in a little, in a little couple of spots, I think. Yeah. All right. Well, are you guys ready to uh, move on to the aftermath then? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the aftermath was written by Blaze, Yannick, and Steve. And I have a quote on it. Been digging up a lot of quotes from Detailed Discography of the Beast. It's an excellent resource. Okay, so here's what Blaze has to say about the aftermath. This is also from the X Factor launch party in 95. With the aftermath, I had an idea hanging around for quite a while that I wanted to do something about the First World War and the poets of the First World War. Because in the British Army, there was a company of musicians and poets, just guys that played trumpets. These guys were in the trenches, and I feel that the First World War was relevant because two global conflicts started in Europe. The first one started in Sarajevo with the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, so that made it more relevant. And as well, I feel that the deeper real truth about those conflicts isn't written in history books, but it's written by the men that experienced it. And then 
later he says, I was reading a lot of poetry from the First World War and around the same time, my father gave me a picture from my great grandfather who died in the First World War. These two things seemed to connect. And when I was searching for lyrical ideas for the album, I had this photo in my notebook and it just seemed to strike a chord. And that's where the aftermath came from really. Silently to silence fall, toys of death or spitting lead, etc. And he like quotes a stanza from the, um, from the song and says, some of my favorite lyrics really. Just completely influenced by poets like Siegfried Sassoon from the First World War. That's something I worked on with Steve Harris and Yannick Gers, and that's an end quote. So I think it's cool that he was like thinking about like the poets of the First World War when he wrote the lyrics. And I think that some of the lyrics are really, really nice in this song. Yeah, definitely. I had notes about that um, and uh, about his grandfather too. And that's, uh, that was really cool uh, how he came up with the, the idea to write this song, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's also an, an insight on the fact that Blaze Bailey reads poetry. Yeah. I think yeah. that's cool. That kind of reminds me like in a weird way of like a little bit more of like a, a fish like method of writing. Like you might like draw inspiration. Like obviously this is a different subject matter than fish would ever like write about, but you draw the subject matter from like different places and like paste it together. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Just throwing that out there. Yeah, no, I think that, um, I think that's right. And but, I mean, it just goes to show that like, you know, on this album, it's not just, that Blaze's singing is different, but as we've noted, and the songwriting for better or for worse is different, but you can clearly see Blaze is like exerting some influence on the band. He's not just like playing backup to, you know. Yeah, he's not just there to fill Bruce's spot. He They're trying to get him to do something more, per, not personal, but more him in, in places. Right. I like the line about the uh, once a plowman hitches his team, here he sowed. His little dream, now bodies, arms, legs are strewn where mustard, gas, and barbed wire bloom. That's got to be like a, a quote from a poem or something like that. I don't, I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe he just wrote it based on what he saw. But That's the rest of the quote that he um, gives in that interview that I was quoting him from. Oh, okay. Which actually, the first part of that is from the launch party, and the, the second part of it is from like a 2014 interview. But... Whether it's original or a quote, I like it. I like the idea of referring to barbed wire as like a living thing, right? Blooming like a plant, like a you can mm-hmm. almost envision like a like a, a vine, you know. And the the barbs are the blooms. Yeah, and it makes it more um, it makes it more visual too. Like you can imagine it better. And it's a it's a really extreme juxtaposition. So it's like it sticks with you because it's a thing that destroys life. And it's right. also completely cold and inanimate. And so to liken it to like a growing plant is really interesting. Yeah, that's really cool. Did anyone else think that the the main riff of this song had a little bit of an ACDC feel? Uh, I didn't take a note about it, but I can kind of see what you're saying. Yeah, neither did I, but I um, I can't kind of can too. Feel like that thing. It's kind of like a, one of the slower more grooving ACDC riffs, yeah. right? Yeah. It's kind of like for those about to rock in a way. <laughs> yeah. Yet another song that does start with like some bass and some uh, some like finger picking sounding guitar. What, for those about to rock? No, no, the, the aftermath. aftermath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
but even the sound of the drums here I almost have the same sound of like ACDC drums. Yeah. Although I think the melody of the voice kind of dispels it a little for me. Uh, yeah, no, but I know what Jonathan's saying. I, I remember listening to this. I didn't write a note about it for whatever reason, but I remember listening to it and thinking like it had a more classic Rocky feel or something than a um, like a metal feel. Oh, I definitely hear exactly what you, what Jonathan's talking about. So yeah, I, I mean, I guess short answer, yeah, I do think it has a little bit of an ACDC thing going on. Yeah. There's another clip like halfway into the song. There's like this buildup when it goes into the solo that I really like. Um, would you guys mind listening to another clip? No, no. Yeah, also that solo is really good. I like that the Wawa is like thick on it. Yeah. Yeah, that was a pretty strong solo. I can agree with This is another Iron Maiden song that I feel like this is the third time that the lyric of War Horse has come up. Because like I know on Sanctuary, he says, out of the winter came a war horse of steel. And we, Brian and I were like, what's a war horse? Maybe it's a motorcycle. But I think maybe here it's an actual like war horse well i know yeah. of the i know of the movie war horse that was made about a horse in world war one but apparently in world war one like one of the biggest issues would be like all the dead horses around you because most of the armies used horses to get shit everywhere mm-hmm. and uh they would get like killed by artillery or whatever and just sit there in the open and it was like including along with the bodies there was like thousands of horses dead everywhere around you all the time too sounds incredibly uh both horrible and disgusting yes so my note my points of like i'm listening taking notes my other big note for this song is that is war a metaphor for a bad marriage in this whole album but after talking about it i think when you look at it as the state of iron maiden and his divorce I feel like it really does pull this whole theme of how he's feeling. Steve Harris, right? Yeah. Because this song could either be a metaphor or it could be literal war. It could be a metaphor for a bad relationship or it could be a metaphor for the falling out of two of uh, very important members of the band leaving. Yeah, it could be taken a lot of ways. And the truth is probably it involves all of that, you know? Right. But it's like, it's not even subtle. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's a metaphor, but it's like, well, some of it's like literal. Like, I would argue once we get to 2 a.m., that's just like literally about just like loneliness. Yeah. It's not even a metaphor. But uh, yeah. So what else do you guys think about the aftermath? I'm ready to move on. I will say real quick, there's, I feel like there's some acoustic guitar or something in the intro. Mm-hmm. And at, at this point in Iron Maiden's history, that would have been extremely unusual, if not unprecedented. But then later it would be very precedented. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it would be historically precedented on record. Well, cool. Yeah, I heard a little, I think I might have heard a little acoustic in the beginning. Yeah. That's kind of what I was talking about. There's like sad guitar with the deep 
droning bass and then it becomes like a metal song Mm -hmm. but yeah okay so let's uh let's move on to judgment of heaven which is another sort of song that deals with religious doubt in the context of depression definitely i thought the lyrics to this song were vaguely like seventh sun-ish like something about them reminded me of that album and maybe i don't know maybe it feels more like a narrated story than some other things like that that album specifically is a very very narrated story like thing not to say there isn't a story but there's the the narrator is a character in the story of this song right yeah that's probably why it feels that way but it sort of just gave me that same vibe because like even the question your beliefs and like your inner thought and your existence and if like will god answer you and stuff are all things that like the seventh son probably was worried about too so, like, sure i don't yeah. i don't know um but yeah it just sounded a little bit like that uh i thought blaze was a lot better on this than he's been on like the previous like three tracks yeah i agree i think blaze is great on this there's um I, go ahead jonathan i was just gonna say yeah i do i do like him on this i think the repetition works much better on this than like fortunes of war i mean i think this is more it this feels more honestly emotional to me than yeah fortunes of war does but i also think it's the my big notes about it is first off we can listen to a clip or we don't have to but the start of this song musically is very a weird upbeat feeling for what the song becomes mm-hmm. and then that ties into like the first couple lines where the first time i like heard it at all and i was like paying attention to the lyrics not even reading them just listening for them and it's like this is almost like a self-help thing from Iron Maiden, and that feels kind of weird. It does, yeah, yeah. But I think, like, there's a tendency of rockers who have been around for more than a decade to start to get weird and introspective, um, and that often bleeds into the lyrics. But, uh, so this song has been performed live by Blaze solo, but not by Maiden, which I think is interesting. Huh. And there's a quote that so in 2003 there's a like a this guy mick wall published run to the hills the auto authorized biography of iron maiden so it's like a something they approved of you know before it got published and he's talking about x factor in this song and he says of the 11 tracks on the x factor at least 10 of them can be read as desperate diary entries from steve's own personal hell of the four tracks that he wrote alone three of them uh, Sign of the Cross, Fortunes of War, and Judgment of Heaven are all specifically about not just the breakup of his marriage, nor even the breakup with Bruce, but about the even more painful and com- confusing breakup that was occurring within himself. Doubts surround him like a cloud of flies in the line like, I felt like suicide a dozen times or more, but that's the easy way, the selfish way, the hard part is to get on with your life from Judgment of Heaven. So... I guess that is to say that this not only what we're taking away from these songs also seems to be sort of the party line on it as well, if that makes sense. Okay. So, yeah. um, Well, one thing that I liked about this song though, is this is one of the times where I feel like the refrain was done really well and it is really repetitive, but something about the tone and the way he hits it, feels really familiar and comforting in a way 
Yeah, it's a nice melody, I think. And, it, you know, he sings it well. I mean, I think that, like, it's within his range. I think he nails it. I mean, it's... And it's for just, sure. for whatever reason, it just lands in the on the ears, you know, better. Yeah, and all the all the little transitions in the song are really working. Uh, do you know where the solo starts, Matt? Yeah, I think I, I think it's around two thirty-eight. Because I marked something about the solo on here, but I didn't put a time. And I thought it, I thought it was a good one. I thought it was like one of the standouts of the album. And if you're, I feel like if we're going to talk about Iron Maiden, sometimes you got to be like, now we got to listen to this solo. That sounds kind of video gamey as well, but I love that shit. Yeah. No, that was super strong. I mean, you guys know I listen to bands that literally just only play covers of video game songs. So, like, it's right at my wheelhouse. Yeah, no, I really like that track. It's probably a standout for me. I do think this song has, like, one of the weirdest, like, maiden, like, vocal endings because Blaze is, yeah, at the end, it's really. Oh, yeah. I've always thought it's kind of odd. All right, let's get that on record. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's a weird-ass way to say yeah. Yeah. He was like, yeah! Ah! So he was doing karate. Yeah. Um, yeah. But cool, respect to that. I, I can't hate anybody's like... Uh, it sounded kind of like he had been like stung by an insect. <laughs> yeah, like a bee but guy. That he wanted and he was like, ah! Yeah. Or like you stub your toe or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's more like uh fucking Lando and the Sarlacc. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah He's like, ah! I talk all this shit about Blaze Bailey, but there's no way I could make the same noise. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Man, you do it if you're so yeah. cool. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's talk about Blood on the World's Hands. All right, all right. Well. So Blood on the World's Hands, this is a Steve Harris song. Uh, it's got a similar theme to like, I don't know, like Man, Man on the Edge or like a Two Minutes to Midnight, or it's like, it's a song that's real doom and gloom about the state of the world, you know? Yeah, it seemed, I wrote it down, it was another sort of anti-war thing that seemed yeah. like somewhat politically motivated, but I've had this thing, this issue with Iron Maiden in the past where like I... I don't like to read too much into the, like, anything they say being politically motivated because it probably isn't, but they, they do a lot of stuff that is like sub politically motivated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Steve Harris says lyrically, I guess it comes from watching what's been going on around the world over the past couple of years. This is in 95, mind you. He says it could be related to what's going on in Bosnia, although it's not specifically about that. Right. So I don't think that he's even, necessarily like coming from like a i'm going to articulate this particular like expressed viewpoint i have on the subject so much as he's like i'm going to write a poem that's about it and some music that goes with it or whatever sure. yeah, yeah. You know? and a very different baseline for iron maiden yeah. yeah i think that um we've said all the songs have like extended intros and bass intros but 
this is like a unique one, I think, among them. Yeah. This is like what he makes one one of the most unique, weirdest bass sounds I've ever heard, like in this song. So let's listen to that. But uh, before we do, I've been using a lot of quotes for this episode again. I'm sorry about that, but it's okay. Steve says from the launch party in '95. Nico has always been asking me for years, really, to do a bass solo. I've never wanted to do one. I did just a little intro on the acoustic bass, and basically, you know, well, it's not a solo, really, or a shortened, it's a shortened version of one, and it's probably about the nearest I'll ever get to doing one, like, in reference to this song. So it's interesting to me that Steve Harris is, like... Reluctant to do a bass solo? Yes. My whole career has been built around playing bass, and I'm certainly capable of playing a bass solo but I just don't want to. So, but here's this. Yeah. You know? So do you just want to start from the beginning? Yeah, I'm cool with that. Okay. I, my clip ended at 21 seconds, but there's this little weird part in between like 12 and 21 that's like one of the weirdest things I've ever heard somebody play on bass. Okay, well, so, I'll keep, uh, keep it. I mean, I, I actually like it, but it's just strange. That is neat. He's also using some um, harmonics too, which is cool. Which is like where you don't actually depress the string on the fretboard, you just touch the string and it like has like a nice ethereal ring to it. Yeah, it's definitely something completely different. It's just something you didn't, you haven't heard in an Iron Maiden song before and in very many other places either. Yeah, I would suspect part of that being a new sound is has to do with A, it being an acoustic bass, and B, just the way that Steve Harris like uses his picking hand, or well, I mean, he's not using a pick, but it's like fingering hand or whatever you would call it. That's his finger in hand. Yeah, I mean, I guess both his hands are. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it has to do with just the way that he plays. I don't know that there's any effect other than it just being you don't hear acoustic bass guitar that much but i could be wrong yeah he gets he gets kind of like that part i was talking about he gets kind of like he like almost like a walk up or something like that it starts low almost like in a funky kind of that right right and then it goes like then he go but then he like really speeds up tempo and it gets like it's not it's not like twangy but it's like a, a vibrato or something it's like and there's like a a vibrating like tendency to it that's like a really high frequency of it but you can still tell it's like a vibrating sound yeah it's interesting i'm glad that it was included i think the bass actually throughout the whole song is good like that's not the only bass part i want to highlight but yeah i mean steve harris despite his introspective weird struggles he's going through like remains able to like fully show up and do the job with the bass throughout this whole record i think yeah okay well uh i guess we could just listen to that second bass clip unless somebody else has something on on blood on the world's hands i mean it, it the bass is the highlight of the song yeah to me i agree and i i didn't really have much else note wise except for the uh the like anti-war politically like somewhat politically motivated song yeah and that's what i what i had too so okay well let's take it to like five minutes even then mm -hmm. 
but even when blaze comes back in he's using like some chords there he's really like feeling this album has a thicker almost muddier sound you mean steve harris no when yeah but I, i'm oh, saying when blaze comes back in okay gotcha that's when he goes from playing just the melody to also including some like mm-hmm. bass chords yeah there's some so it's definitely like i said at the beginning it's definitely a heavier album in some ways like in some like some of those dramatic heavy ways it's weird to me because i like the blood bass. on the world yeah the double bass thing yeah that's another mm-hmm. thing maiden that didn't do too much prior to this but i so i like blood on the world's hands but I still have feelings I haven't totally untangled about X Factor and Blaze because I like Blaze on this song, but he's doing the same things that I don't like him doing on some of the tracks that I don't like as much. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I get that, but this is this this could have benefited from not being an Iron Maiden song. <laughs> to, to, from that's one of the things I feel like to me like this is this kind of song is the reason to do a different project not sure what i mean i guess what what would you just call it blaze bailey i mean i just i'm not sure that that could happen well it's blaze and steve right it's everybody who was in iron maiden an album ago except the singer no no i mean writing credits for this song just steve harris yeah so you don't have to call it blaze bailey it's all but steve the way I see it, it seems like a Steve's the Iron Maiden, anyways, as we said earlier. But the what I what I read was Steve seemed really excited about Blaze, right? Mm-hmm. So why didn't they just do something together and be more experimental there? Because I think because besides hey, keeping that, the Iron Maiden brand, like we said earlier, I think that would imply the end of Iron Maiden if that happened you know what i mean like rather than saying like okay well iron maiden has carried on before it'll carry on now and this is just we're just a different thing now that's almost like saying the old thing is what iron maiden is and this is something different and iron maiden is a thing of the past do you know what i mean and and that may be an artificial distinction but not to me i do i do but i want to take a moment and, and compare to fish right so i'm not positive but brian how many times have fish taken hiatuses well they they took like a year or two um in 2000 2001 time period and then also from 2004 to like 2009 yeah like why wasn't that an option for iron maiden to say hey we're not broken up we're just going to do some other stuff for a little while because bruce wanted to focus on his solo career like yeah but there was like i believe there was like a three-year gap in between fear of the dark and this sure okay so, so like, maybe I think they, they did spent do a long, that and long then, time writing this album that makes sense maybe they were de- debating how to go forward and it took three years to finish it all and make it okay well some of the process some of the time was auditioning singers but i know that the writing of this album took over a year the writing and recording of it so i don't know I mean, it, it's definitely an interesting what if. I just think that, like, for good, for better or for worse, these albums, like, you got to ask, like, the modern Maiden, would it exist if Blaze Bailey hadn't been, like, if Bruce had never left, would they have, like, because I think their quality was beginning to dip before he left, personally. Right. So would they have reemerged so strongly, like, because when, when he came back, he and Adrian Smith came back, it was a big deal in 2000. Right. I guess, look, 
look at it more like this you definitely think this is iron maiden album what if there was an album like this but there was one of the three songs that were cut was more iron maiden and like on this and then they had steve and blaze put out like a four song ep separate from trying to do iron maiden with stuff like this would you like this song more okay so i'll concede that one of the ways to get into the X factor is to not necessarily hitch this big mythological Iron Maiden wagon to it and to see it as like the Iron Maiden band backing Blaze Bailey. I can see like how once you do that and you, it's a way to escape your preconceived notions of Iron Maiden. So I, I see the appeal of what you're saying, but at the end of the day, I don't think that like actually creating the divorce of the iron maiden name from the this music necessarily would have made practical sense at the time okay but i'm just speaking you about this song in particular you said and it's 1995 like my maiden's audience is not really buying eps i don't think i guess not you know i mean this album would have come out on cd like primarily for sure but if then you know like five years later they might have like a digital ep in between albums but five years earlier they might actually put out an ep but at this time you're right about that i mean you could get the singles on 45 and stuff like i mean they did press the singles onto vinyl and the albums onto vinyl but i just i don't think that market was nearly what it was before or what it is today at that time well i think at this point in time there's blood on our hands well, someone should. about this song too much. <laughs> okay, well, um, you guys ready to move on? Yeah, I'm ready. Let's talk about The Edge of Darkness, which is a Blaze, Yannick, and Steve song, and I'm surprised. I hope they didn't all contribute to the lyrics because I'm surprised that uh, Maiden was allowed to write and publish this song, as a matter of fact, because it's so heavily lifted from so it's Heart of Darkness, but it's really Apocalypse Now, the movie Apocalypse Now. And like most, if not all, of the lyrics, the lyrics the are like the script. Are the, the yeah. dialogue. <laughs> from, yeah, it's pr- like it, it's not even like hidden. It's just like these are the lines that people, the actors say. But we've put them in like to, to, uh, to this sweet maiden tune. <laughs> yeah, it, it it's just Apocalypse Now. It, my big note about this song is that this might be the biggest argument for Blaze sounding like Danzig. Yeah, I think uh, Manhunt is a, a better argument for that, but I see what you're saying. Well, Manhunt wasn't uh, an Iron Maiden song, right? No, it wasn't, but Blaze Bailey sang it. Oh, okay. Can we listen to a little bit of Blaze in this one? Sure. Do you have a specific... Uh... I don't. I uh, have a specific one, but when Jonathan said that, now I want to listen to it. Well, give me some pa- some patience and I'll figure it out. Oh, yeah. For sure, dude. Thanks for staying up late with us. So speaking of um, Blaze Bailey on this, there's a quote that I think is really funny as we're looking up a good spot. Um, Edge of Darkness was more, it was like, you know, like a journey. It's got a small reference to the movie Apocalypse Now. A and small, is, small reference. It's, yeah, like, who the fuck are you kidding, man? 
<laughs> and just the whole vibe of looking inside yourself and recognizing the animal instinct and the darker side of human nature, et cetera, et cetera. But it's like, come on, man. This song is Apocalypse Now. Like it it's word to- for word, the movie. Yeah, it's like, okay, the vibe of looking inside yourself and the animal instinct, okay, sure, that fits with the theme of the album. But that's what Lord of the Flies is about. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just the, that whole thing, I had to read that because he said it's got a small reference to Apocalypse Now, and I thought that was really awesome. Yeah, so here's a, this the the part after the little solo at like 317, it's kind of a good example of what I mean. It doesn't start off that way, but it ends up that way. All right. Okay, can we start at um, three minutes even? Because I really like the guitars that lead into that part. And that way we can just hear the whole thing. Sounds good. I know Captain that you've done this work before. We've got a problem, you can help us. It's it's those last the way he hits those last lines and those last notes are very very danzigy. Yeah, it's like the way that some of his lines end, like the way he holds the notes. Yeah, I don't find him as raw as Danzig. Yeah, no. I don't think he. I don't find him. It's interesting you say that because I find him as raw as Danzig, but I don't find him to be as much of a like a heavy crooner as I find Danzig to be. No, no, Danzig was way more a crooner to me for sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it's the crooning or something, but he he has more of like an attitude or something. I don't know what it is. Yeah, I think they have a different attitude. Like I I consider like Danzig to be more like cocksure, you know. Sure. Yeah. You mean he's got some BDE? Excuse oh, yeah. me. Some big dick energy. Oh, yeah. right. That's what the kids are saying today. Mhm. Get with the times. So yeah, I think that I think that song's fun. It's ridiculous because they didn't really write the lyrics, and it's just about apocalypse now. They even put like a helicopter sound effect in the beginning, right? But uh, I don't skip it. Like if I if I was listening to the X Factor for my own enjoyment, there's some tracks I might skip, and this isn't one of them. Like I think this song's fine. There's not there's nothing like to be protested here. I don't think for me anyway. No, it's fine. It's not like. It's not an amazing Iron Maiden song, but it's not a bad Iron Maiden song. It sounds like an Iron Maiden song. Yeah, those yeah. guitars that we heard certainly are uh, Maiden-y. And the cadence of the lyrics, too. It's like, I, I mean, along with the gallop, Maiden often has that, like, sing the words to 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 the words, you know, kind of thing going on. Somebody make a I really hope somebody makes that into a song. Yeah. <laughs> I was just remarking to, I guess, I think it was Jonathan. It was one of you guys the other day, and this is how bad my memory is, but how, like, there needs to be a supercut of all the times we've tried to, like, explain what part of the song we were talking about by being, like, the part or whatever, you know? Yeah, we're just making instrument noises with our mouth. All right, so anything else on Edge of Darkness? Other than it makes me want to rewatch Apocalypse Now, kind of. Yeah, a little bit. It's loosely based on it. It's a little bit. It's a small reference. Yeah. See if you can find it. (laughs) Oh, Lord. All right. So 2 a.m. This is another uh, song written by Blaze, Yannick, and Steve. 
Which is funny because to me, this is the most personal Iron Maiden song I've ever heard. Without a doubt. Yeah. And I'm not sure who was primarily responsible for the lyrics. Let me see if there are any quotes here. It kind of reminds me of Working Man by Rush. It's like a more depressed working man. Yeah, yeah, but it's like I get in from work at 2 a.m. and sit down with a beer, turn on the late night TV and wonder why I'm here. It's kind of like the same as uh, I get off at five o'clock and I take a sip from a nice cold beer. (laughs) there's, There's also something about it. And this is silly and cheesy. But hey, I mean, everybody likes a little bit of cheese. But there is almost a white snake sound in it, too. That's interesting. I'm only familiar with their hits, really, but... Uh, I don't think you need to be familiar with more than that. Well, Jonathan, where's that at? Let me find it real quick. It might even just be the refrain. Oh, it totally is the refrain. So, is that acoustic again at the beginning of this? Yeah, it has to be. So, yeah, again, they're like it's another song that starts with like an acoustic guitar. Mm-hmm. And, like, I mean, they, it's crazy that, like, I've heard albums where like songs start that way, but I haven't heard like so many of them do it. You wear like eight out of 11 or more. Right. That yeah. Way, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we can listen to the refrain, but the real point is, is that it's almost similar to the most popular White Snake songs refrain. Oh, because uh, of the here I am thing. I, I see what you again. mean. Again. Yeah. Here I am again. Here I go again. It's just so, and it's almost, it's not the same sound, but it's the same kind of like delivery and the music as well. Yeah, but this is like, this I is heavy. Yeah, it's way less like. Let's still listen to it. So it, you can just jump in around 106. All right. You know, one thing I will say about that chorus and this song is like, this is a song that I just can't really imagine Bruce Dickinson performing. Yeah, I I don't know anything about his solo career, but I don't see him singing something so personal. (laughs) Well, it's not even that. I just mean like the melody. It's just hard for me to envision his voice in Blaze's voice's stead here. Yeah, that's a spot where he sounds a little danziggy too. Yeah, I really love the chorus to the like two. I've enjoyed this song. Like two AM is one of my. It's in the top half for me of the songs on this album. It breaks the waterline of the fifty percent X factor test. But does it pass the Bechtel test? Is that where there's uh, two women talking in a scene and it's not about a man? Yeah, does it pass that? Is that what that test is? Does it? Yeah, but does an Iron Maiden album pass the Bechtel test? No, but uh, a an Iron Maiden's album does. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Okay, so anyway, uh, there's this guitar riff at three minutes and then like a bass part that goes into the solo I really like. Can we check that out? Yeah. Sure. Let's just go to like three minutes even. Even Stevens. I'm glad you weren't referring to some other test. No, no, that's the Bechtel test. <laughs> okay, cool. All right, ready? Yep. Mm-hmm. Go. 
one of the reasons I like that part is because Maiden's not really known for establishing grooves in their song to nearly the degree that like Black Sabbath is right or at least like Ozzy era Black Sabbath so and when they do and it comes off I find it really effective and I like that part and that guitar riff leading into it that like if you pay very close attention varies because they do different numbers of the so one time it'll be like and the next time it'll be and they go one extra they go to 11 well no i'm just saying the way no, it's no, composed is like they build another note each time well it not even necessarily form like linearly like that i'm saying it's not the same each time yeah that's cool yeah which it's like easy to not notice on the first listen i think yeah that's very missable, but still a nice touch. Mm-hmm. Also, um, this song contains more woeing. I don't know if you guys are pro or con, or excuse me, pro or anti that here. I'm uh, indifferent towards it here, honestly. Mm-hmm. How'd you feel about the woes on this one, Brian? Eh, yeah, I mean, I, I thought he did good on this song, but it's just overall, I was like, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you, would you say that you're predominantly anti-woe-woeing in general in songs like not just in maiden because i can see an argument that it's like out of character or something but just generally how do you do you have any thoughts no no i i like it sometimes it depends i find it to irritate my ears when he gets too hard on like the like like and it just goes for a while uh-huh. You just irritated my microphone's ears and it muted you. That's what I'm saying. It didn't mute you here, but you went like, uh, yeah. So all it was I'm like somebody is, threw a goldfish into your mouth at the end. When of it's the- going down like that, it's like, I don't know. It's just, it's something about it. Like, I don't know. I don't know what I want instead. I, I, maybe it's not possible. That's what I was saying to like earlier. It's like, I still haven't fully like, worked through my feelings on this record enough to be able to explain using only words what I do and don't like about it. Uh, And I don't think everybody has the same likes and dislikes about this album because I I love Blaze on this uh, song and I like how the On My Own rings out and stays there and it's like in my face. But like I said, he could do the same thing on a different song and I might be like, I hate when he does that there. Yeah, to me it was the like I said, it was the um, it was the Lord of the or the Lords of War, uh, uh, Fortunes of War, and the one after that where he had like where he did like the OEO, and it just something about it like didn't it didn't hold together. Maybe it's not his fault. Like maybe maybe Jonathan's right. Maybe it's he's just not being used in the correct method because like Iron Maiden's so used to having like a Bruce there or something to like. You know, I mean, Bruce is like a guitar. Yeah. yeah. You know what well, I mean? Like, whereas, like, I don't think Blaze is quite, I think Blaze is like almost like a bass singer. Yeah, he has a much lower register. I will say, though, all of those woes, like, for whatever purpose they serve and however well they fit on the record, would have worked better in concert when you have, like, a crowd full of Iron Maiden fans singing along. And it's possible that's why they're here. Now, I don't want to jump to that conclusion, but it could be. 
Well, because you and I have listened to a decent amount of Blaze Bailey Iron Maiden live. Like we've watched it before and stuff. And it's more impactful in that sense. So I can't agree with that. And that's something that like, as a fish fan that I will say about like a lot of the albums is like this stuff might be in here because it's impactful live, not because, or it like makes space for them to do something live, not because of like it being a great self-contained thing, self-contained thing. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. What do you think, Jonathan? About the woes? Well, that or just about 2am generally. Again, it's one of these songs that I like it. It just feels off. Hmm. Interesting. This is one of the one of the songs to me that I have like basically no problems with. No, I don't dislike it at all. There's just something slightly off about it. I think it is the how personal of a song it is for Iron Maiden. Like I said, like, well, that's true. But don't you think that like the topic is relatable for most people? Yeah, but I don't think that's what Iron Maiden does. <laughs> See, that's what I was saying earlier. I I agree with Jonathan. Like, I to me, like when Iron Maiden starts getting their feelings involved in it. Like that doesn't work as well for me because that's not an Iron Maiden song. But but see, here's the thing: is like, do you have to listen to? Because I'm, I'm not sure it's necessary to like as as you're listening to any band's album throughout from track to track, be constantly being like, what does this hold up to like the band's ethos or whatever it is? Like, do you know what I mean? No, and that's why I don't think it's a bad song. It just feels off. So are you saying it feels off from your pre- your notion of what Iron Maiden is, or it feels off because the song as it's presented needs some tweaking to be a better song as a standalone, no matter who it's by? Do, does that um, question make sense? A little bit of both, but mostly A. Right. But it is a little bit of both, but it leans heavier on the, this isn't, this just doesn't feel like an Iron Maiden song to me because of that overtly personal tone. Sure. Yeah, well, I think that's that's right. I mean, obviously, the bulk of Iron Maiden songs are not personal, although they would they have written personal songs before and after this. Uh, yeah, I can see that being like a system shock. But I I like this song more than I like the Unbeliever, which is the closer of the album. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, I think arguably, like in terms of like the arrangement of the tracks, you could switch them. But I think like. 2 a.m. is a bummer of a, like a message to end an album on, even though the whole album is kind of like a downer. Uh, I like The Unbeliever. I don't dislike The Unbeliever. I'm just saying I like 2 a.m. more. And I think that there's actually an argument that you can take out all of Blaze from The Unbeliever and be left with a better song. I 100% agree with that. This is where I got to like the point with Blaze Bailey where I was like, this sounds the most like new metal or something like that. Except for you have to go back and have the connection to judgment of heaven that part has to be there it's definitely about doubt and religion so sure but i think just calling it the unbeliever gets that like i what i'm saying is the instrumental parts i think in this are very good and the vocal parts in it it's not just it's not that i think he's singing it badly it's just i don't like the composition of it and i think that if you remove that you could transition the previous instrumental part into the next one and be, right, I mean, this song I, is eight minutes long you'd still be left with a, a whole song no totally i i kind of like the the court the verses i think it's just kind of silly for them to do it it's a little bit different but this song does 
pick back up into the chorus of judgment of heaven or am i crazy what are you talking about he says all of my life i have believed in this song does he or does he not if i'm wrong cut this out but i could have sworn he does if not i'm just haunted by the refrain to judgment of heaven and it's in my head all the time so it's all my life i've run away all my life i've tried to hide away right but it ties back in and i like that part and it ties into the judgment of heaven though because it's all my life you know it's it's a, a little miniature theme yeah if you're just talking about him saying all my life yeah he says all my life that like a thousand times in the unbeliever right that's what i'm saying there it, but it, it's a very i think it's an intentional tie to judgment of heaven that way that may be the case i mean it's thematically the same but i would say it's not totally necessary i think too the song's arbitrarily long i think like sign of the cross justifies its length by being like changing it up and being interesting yeah you could cut this song down the instrumental breaks are really good like the the instrumental parts of this song are awesome for a brief second i thought i heard horns in this song but i'm pretty sure they're not there it's probably no yeah but man it was it was so close like uh can we play that part yeah, sure. Were you about to like throw your computer in the rain when you heard that? What when when Iron Maiden brought in horns? No, I was like, I was like, who is it? Like, let's get this horn group out. Yeah, you're like, this divorce must have really fucked Steve Harris up. Yeah, he started <laughs> started putting horns in the. Band. He started I mean, like, and, yeah, and I love horns. You know what I mean? Yeah, but they better not show up too much in this type of thing. Yeah, so it was like three thirty-five. It's definitely synth, but it's 335 to 340. Maybe go back to like 330 so you can walk in. Just pay attention. It sounds like horns. Did you hear that? Yeah, it did almost sound like a trumpet doing a trill or something. Yeah. The bass right after that is uh, awesome. Oh, super good. Yeah. I liked this song, actually, uh, except for the words. So, yeah, and, and like, this is the other thing that was making me wonder if, like, Blaze Bailey was religious or if something was going on because just so much, like, so much more of this God imagery and, like, I don't know. Yeah. I'm not a religious man, so sometimes that stuff is harder for me, too, so I don't... I mean, I was raised in religion, but no longer like sometimes i'm like is this person religious or are they just saying these things but it is funny on my notes here i put a thing about um it being acoustic as well mm-hmm. which is uh pretty cool because like this is like like you said this is probably like the beginning of uh iron maiden ever using anything acoustic but at this point in the album it's been precedented sure it is precedented but it uh but you know what i mean like you said it was unprecedented before this yeah, and it'll be more precedented later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, this was a standout track for me, though, honestly. I really liked this song. Can we listen to the intro of this song? Of course. There's actually a part I put a note about. Um, I said 18 to 30 seconds, some weird stuff. Okay, so I'm sure we'll, I'm sure we'll encounter it. I got to find California Uber Alice. Oh, yeah, because of the bass? or And the drums, kind of. Mm-hmm. 
So I sort of thought that he sounded like the dude from System of a Down. There's some kind of effect on his voice, I feel like. Like, yeah. you know, I don't know. You know what I'm saying there? Like when the guy from System of a Down is singing, I haven't listened to a ton of System of a Down, but that's kind of what he sounds like. And I can see it there. I can see it there in the previous place I mentioned. Like, since you mentioned it, I've been kind of like... The cadence is similar too, like to like that newer, like that like early 2000s metal than it is to... Well, the guy from System of a Down is a good choice as a example i think because when i think of him i think of like that in your face yelling kind of talking really loud kind of thing right you know and i can see some of that in blaze i don't know his name i feel bad isn't it surge something his name's surge i'll look it up the guy from system of a dam s-e-r-j yeah he's surge tankian yeah, something like that. You probably know more of a system of a down than I do, honestly. Is it not Sergey? No, it's Surge. Oh, okay. Surge. Surge. Cool. Well, I'm glad I know that now. But you see what I mean? Like, it, that's kind of where I was getting that from. Like, mm-hmm. he has a little bit of that same cadence and that same, like, talking and the, the harshness. Like, I think it falls a little into that territory. I think that that's probably right. And that's... To me, that's maybe one of the things where I'm like, we don't really need that on this track. Because <laughs> as you know, I'm not a fan of, of new metal. Um, I'm not saying that like everything System of a Down has done is without value because I haven't listened to them very much. So I don't want... I want to be 100% clear and say, as far as I know, System of the Down is that band that does Wake Up You Wanted To or whatever. That yeah, song. yeah, yeah, yeah. Am I correct? Do they also have the wah thing? Oh, yeah, they do. That is them. Is that them? I thought that was like Drowning Pool or someone. I don't no, know. No, Drowning Pool is let the bodies hit the floor. Oh, nice. Can I come on? Can I come on New Year's? Can I come on New Year's and do Drowning Pool? Okay, oh sure. God, please <laughs> do. You guys should do an album that, like, is both of us despised. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, this is why this sucks. <laughs> no, no, awesome. New Year's isn't about. No, that. I don't even know. I've never listened to the Drowning Pool album, so I can't say I hate it. Like, I bet a million people out there would say they hate the album uh, prostitu- "Prostitutionalized" by Downset, but uh, I love that album. Hostility towards the opposition. Yeah, I know. Exactly. There's ar- arguably a uh, Papa Roach arguably stole a, a Maiden riff for one of their songs, but we'll get into that later. Not, not today. Okay, so. There's another clip I want to hear from the Unbeliever before we uh, finish up talking about the tracks real quick. And obviously, like if you've got guys have more on it, we can talk about that too as well. But would you guys mind going to like 520 because that's where the song comes back in and kind of picks up pace and goes back into the intro kind of thing. But yeah, so they return to that theme from the beginning, that intro, which at the time when you go from the intro to the verses seems like not necessarily a fully related piece of music, but then when they recontextualize it, it kind of fits, I think. Sure. Okay. So you guys have anything else to say about the unbeliever? No, that's it for me. No, I think, I think musically it's a really interesting song and I really enjoyed it and I can see why people wouldn't like those verses, but I kind of do. And I can see why you would see them being kind of new metal ish, but I didn't feel that way about them and without looking for it. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. And I I expect us to have different highlights and different lowlights, but I'm glad we were all on board with at least with Lord of the Flies there, if nothing else. Yeah. It's a complicated album. I think that it 
it's an album that it's easy to dismiss and be like, oh, you know, Bruce is the real Maiden, like screw this whole period of Maiden, I'm not going to listen to it. But I think it's wrong to do that. I think there's a lot on this album that's like worth it, uh, that justifies its existence, even if, even if it's only like half the tracks. I think some of the tracks that are standouts are great. I love Sign of the Cross. I love Lord of the Flies. I'll defend Man on the Edge. I also like 2AM. And then there's some like, some Man on the Edge is silly, but so is Edge of Darkness. And I don't know. I put this record on voluntarily. So, you know, if I'm crazy for that, then I'm crazy. Well, you are crazy, but not for that. Okay. So, yeah, I guess, um, Brian, you want to give us your uh, revised Maiden rankings? What have we talked about? Six albums now? Yeah, so we've got Iron Maiden, Uh Power Slave, Number of the Beast, Seventh Son, and then uh, No Prayer for the Dying, and Now Today, this. I think I go Number of the Beast, Iron Maiden, Power Slave, Seventh Son, this, No Prayer for the Dying. Yeah, that's a respectable ranking. I think that that's a... That's a ranking that not too many would argue with. Although I think most people, I think like even with the defense that I've made of this album, like of like it not being like dismissed outright, I think if you were to say like, okay, I've listened to this and No Prayer for the Dying, and to me, No Prayer is still like more the Maiden that I love. Like, okay, like I can see placing this below it. I just thought No Prayer for the Dying as an album fell flat. And I thought there was some more interesting musical stuff going on in this. Although I will say that I really don't, I haven't been convinced by Blaze Bailey yet. And I don't really like the mood of this album either. Yeah, I, th- I th- certainly think that it's full of negative emotions. Uh, That's not a thing that I am always against. It's just something, again, like John, like you were saying, Jonathan was saying, like it's something I don't see Iron Maiden doing. And it doesn't work for me in that context. When I'm like really sad and I want to hear a sad song, I'm not like... Oh, let me go get grab my. I'm gonna go get yelled at by Blaze Bailey. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that makes sense. Although, like, I think that I just like I see Blaze as sort of an underdog figure, and I like that about him. And I think that there are songs and just things that he's done in Maiden that are worth celebrating. And whether or not the period of him being in the band, I mean, I, I can't see this being anybody's favorite Maiden album. It doesn't make sense. But to me, the, the two albums before the Blaze Bailey era weren't that great either. I think like the whole of the 90s were like kind of a dark period for the band. Okay, but correct me if I'm wrong. The album before the Blaze Bailey era still has like one of the best Iron Maiden songs. Yes, but this album has one of the best Iron Maiden songs. Right, right. Fair. I mean, and that's a controversial statement by me more than it is by you. I think more people like Fear of the Dark than like Sign of the Cross. But I will say that Fear of the Dark has been in their live set rotation for a long time, long enough time that people who see a lot of Maiden are like somewhat beginning to like tire of it. Sure, I could understand that too. But it's a good, it's a song with a lot of audience participation, and it's it's an awesome song. So I mean, I have to give you that. Gotta give me that. Did you have any overall thoughts on the record that you haven't already spoken to, or? I mean, it's it's an interesting record. Again, I don't want to be redundant, but there's a lot of good here, and some of it is 
blaze like he's not all the negative is blaze and not all the good isn't blaze but it is it is an interesting step and i appreciated experiencing that step but i can definitely understand why someone who is a like diehard iron maiden fan especially with the bruce era would come to this and not be satisfied with it at all yeah, and I certainly think it's not an album that you listen to once and and kind of get. Yeah, for sure. But I I think like it was a necessary phase for the band in a way. Yeah. So I don't know. It sits in its where it sits in their history. Uh, but I think that that alone, uh, if you're really intimate and makes it worth exploring, just so you can kind of understand the whole arc of the band and its history and all of that. I'm definitely glad I've listened to it. Yeah, it's weird and it's hard to listen to in some at times, but I will say it it was hard to give repeated listens to it. Not saying listening to it more than once, but sometimes I just try to put on the record on repeat so it plays through while I'm doing other stuff and I had to put some stuff in between listens of this. I couldn't just sit there and listen to it this album from start to finish and then back to start to finish. Oh, dude, I would never be able to listen to this album two times consecutively. Yeah. Yeah, I feel you on that. That Yeah, that makes total sense. Well, so uh, if listeners want to hear more of Jonathan giving his opinion on music, uh, not just specific to Iron Maiden and or Fish, he has a music podcast. Uh, you, you're on New Ears. Tell us a little bit about that, man. Yeah, well, uh, it's the, the auditory exploration of the art of the album is the tagline I liked the most. We look at different stuff both of you have been guests there's other people involved there people come on they pick an album i pick an album we we talk about it track by track try to figure out what makes it an album we put out a new episode on the first monday every month and you can catch us on uh, all the streaming platforms and you know i'm also one fourth of another podcast which is called bite of passage where 3.5 creative writing majors uh or majors make it sound like they're in school they have their creative degrees in creative writing and i'm the point five so i'm saying they uh, but we we break down the the twilight saga um two of the us are fans two of us have never read it before there's a little something in the show for everyone if you don't like twilight i'm right there with you i still like twilight sometimes Cool. Yeah. No, that's that's awesome. I've listened to the first episode. I know it it just debuted recently. Uh and there's a there's a lot to like and a lot to look forward to. So uh I also wanted to say uh thanks a lot for coming on both of these episodes. I know it was a lot of work for you to take on that you totally didn't have to, and two albums that you probably were not excited about having to listen to a bunch of times each. So uh thanks for, for doing that. Well, thanks for having me, and I'm glad I listened to both of these albums. They've both taught me a lot and both made me explore a lot of stuff outside of the albums themselves. Awesome, man. Well, I'd love to come on your show again sometime. Yeah, uh, and it's be been great. awesome having you on here, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks to you, for sure. And uh, Brian, what are we going to do next time? All right, so our next album is going to be um, Fish Hoist. It's their uh, fifth studio album, the one after Rift, which is so we're basically, we've gotten up to right where after we started. Um, so now there's only going to be a one album gap. 
which is what Billy breathes. Right. Yes. And then um, this album's pretty pretty interesting. It's a lot more produced. Uh, it it um, well, I mean, I guess all we talked about the production through uh, picture of Nectar and Rift, and now we're at a place where like they're starting to bring on like guests and stuff. So this this has uh, guest appearances by Alison Krauss, who's a famous uh, bluegrass musician. Mm-hmm. Maybe all country. Bella Fleck is like a famous banjoist. Tower of Power. Oh, nice. Yeah, they, I like their work with uh, Little Feet. Right. And uh, Rose Stone, who was uh, in Sly and the Family Stone. And then also the actor Jonathan Frakes, who uh, played uh, Commander Riker on Next Generation. Yeah. Next Generation. Yeah. He has a um, he has a trombone part on this. Cool. I'm uh, I'm interested to hear what they sounded like immediately after Rift. I'm also interested to listen to this album because if I'm not mistaken, it's the one that has a horse being like either raised or lowered on a crane as if to feed a T-Rex. Yeah. So the joke is um, they originally wanted to name the album uh, hung like a horse, but they all rejected that name. So they named it hoist instead, but they kept the joke as a visual. For the horse. Yeah. For, so you're hung like a horse. Makes sense. Yeah. Cause he's <laughs> hanging, he's hanging there from the harness. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, awesome, man. Well, uh, cool. I look forward to discussing it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, Jonathan, again. And uh, we'll see you next time. All right, later. Thanks for listening to another episode of Beast in the Maze. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, feel free to reach us at mail at beastinthemaze.com. We're also on Twitter at beast underscore maze. Our website is www.beastinthemaze.com, and you can also leave comments there. Thanks again for listening. We hope to see you next time. And that concludes our little crossover with the Beast in the Maze podcast for now, although I sure hope to hear from both of them on New Year's again soon. In the next episode, we're going to be covering the album Sister Cities by The Wonder Years, and I'm going to be joined by my co-host from the Bite of Passage podcast. You can look at the episode info to find out where to reach us. We would love your comments, suggestions, corrections, anything. Let us know you're listening. Thanks for joining us, and take care. is an abandoned mascot production and part of the abandoned mascot network a loose affiliation of podcasts for media arts creators and connoisseurs for more information follow us on twitter at abandoned one that's abandoned m-a-s-c-o and the number one thanks for listening